What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part 3, Chapter 14 Three years had passed away since the escape of the prisoners from Richmond, and how often during those three years had they spoken of their country, always present in their thoughts. They had no doubt that the Civil War was at an end, and to them it appeared impossible that the just cause of the North had not triumphed. But what had been the incidents of this terrible war? How much blood had it not cost? How many of their friends must have fallen in the struggle? They often spoke of these things, without as yet being able to foresee the day when they would be permitted once more to see their country. To return thither were it but for a few days, to renew the social link with the inhabited world, to establish a communication between their native land and their island, then to pass the longest, perhaps the best, portion of their existence in this colony, founded by them, and which would then be dependent on their country, was this a dream impossible to realize? There were only two ways of accomplishing it. Either a ship must appear off Lincoln Island, or the colonists must themselves build a vessel strong enough to sail to the nearest land. Unless, said Pencroft, our good genius himself provides us with the means of returning to our country. And really, had any one told Pencroft and Neb that a ship of three hundred tons was waiting for them in Shark Gulf, or at Port Balloon, they would not even have made a gesture of surprise. In their state of mind nothing appeared improbable. But Cyrus Harding, less confident, advised them to confine themselves to fact and more especially so with regard to the building of a vessel, a really urgent work, since it was for the purpose of depositing, as soon as possible, at Tabor Island a document indicating Ayrton's new residence. As the Bonaventure no longer existed, six months at least would be required for the construction of a new vessel. Now winter was approaching, and the voyage would not be made before the following spring. "'We have time to get everything ready for the fine season,' remarked the engineer, who was consulting with Pencroft about these matters. "'I think, therefore, my friend, that since we have to rebuild our vessel, it will be best to give her larger dimensions. The arrival of the Scotch yacht at Tabor Island is very uncertain. It may even be that, having arrived several months ago, she has again sailed after having vainly searched for some trace of Ayrton.' Will it not then be best to build a ship which, if necessary, could take us either to the Polynesian archipelago or to New Zealand? What do you think? I think, Captain, answered the sailor, I think that you are as capable of building a large vessel as a small one. Neither the wood nor the tools are wanting. 
It is only a question of time. And how many months would be required to build a vessel of from 250 to 300 tons? asked Harding. Seven or eight months at least, replied Pencroft. But it must not be forgotten that winter is drawing near, and that in severe frost wood is difficult to work. We must calculate on several weeks' delay, and if our vessel is ready by next November, we may think ourselves very lucky. Well, replied Cyrus Harding, that will be exactly the most favorable time for undertaking a voyage of any importance, either to Tabor Island or to a more distant land. So it will, Captain, answered the sailor. Make out your plans, then. The workmen are ready, and I imagine that Ayrton can lend us a good helping hand. The colonists, having been consulted, approved the engineer's plan, and it was indeed the best thing to be done. It is true that the construction of a ship of from two to three hundred tons would be great labor, but the colonists had confidence in themselves, justified by their previous success. Cyrus Harding then busied himself in drawing the plan of the vessel and making the model. During this time his companions employed themselves in felling and carting trees to furnish the ribs, timbers, and planks. The forest of the far west supplied the best oaks and elms. They took advantage of the opening already made on their last excursion to form a practicable road, which they named the Far West Road, and the trees were carried to the chimneys, where the dockyard was established. As to the road in question, the choice of trees had rendered its direction somewhat capricious, but at the same time it facilitated the access to a large part of the Serpentine Peninsula. It was important that the trees should be quickly felled and cut up, for they could not be used while yet green, and some time was necessary to allow them to get seasoned. The carpenters, therefore, worked vigorously during the month of April, which was troubled only by a few equinoctial gales of some violence. Master Jup aided them dexterously, either by climbing to the top of a tree to fasten the ropes, or by lending his stout shoulders to carry the lopped trunks. All this timber was piled up under a large shed, built near the chimneys, and there awaited the time for use. The month of April was tolerably fine, as October often is in the northern zone. At the same time other work was actively continued, and soon all trace of devastation disappeared from the plateau of Prospect Heights. The mill was rebuilt, and new buildings rose in the poultry-yard. It had appeared necessary to enlarge their dimensions, for the feathered population had increased considerably. The stable now contained five onagers, four of which were well broken, and allowed themselves to be either driven or ridden, and a little colt. The colony now possessed a plough, to which the onagers were yoked like regular Yorkshire or Kentucky oxen. The colonists divided their work, and their arms never tired. Then who could have enjoyed better health than these workers, and what good humor enlivened the evenings in Granite House, as they formed a thousand plans for the future? As a matter of course, Ayrton shared the common lot in every respect, and there was no longer any talk of his going to live at the corral. Nevertheless, he was still sad and reserved and joined more in the work than in the pleasures of his companions. But he was a valuable workman, at need. 
strong, skilful, ingenious, intelligent. He was esteemed and loved by all, and he could not be ignorant of it. In the meanwhile, the corral was not abandoned. Every other day one of the settlers, driving the cart or mounted on an onager, went to look after the flock of musmons and goats, and bring back the supply of milk required by Neb. These excursions at the same time afforded opportunities for hunting. Therefore Herbert and Gideon Spilett, with top in front, traversed more often than their companions the road to the corral, and with the capital guns which they carried, capybaras, agoutis, kangaroos, and wild pigs for large game, ducks, grouse, jacamars, and snipe for small game, were never wanting in the house. The produce of the warren, of the oyster-bed, several turtles which were taken, excellent salmon which came up the mercy, vegetables from the plateau, wild fruit from the forest, were riches upon riches, and Neb, the head-cook, could scarcely by himself store them away. The telegraphic wire between the corral and Granite House had of course been repaired, and it was worked whenever one or other of the settlers was at the corral, and found it necessary to spend the night there. Besides, the island was safe now, and no attacks were to be feared, at any rate from men. However, that which had happened might happen again. A descent of pirates, or even of escaped convicts, was always to be feared. It was possible that companions or accomplices of Bob Harvey had been in the secret of his plans, and might be tempted to imitate him. The colonists, therefore, were careful to observe the sea around the island, and every day their telescope covered the horizon enclosed by Union and Washington Bays. When they went to the corral they examined the sea to the west with no less attention, and by climbing the spur their gaze extended over a large section of the western horizon. Nothing suspicious was discerned, but still it was necessary for them to be on their guard. The engineer one evening imparted to his friends a plan which he had conceived for fortifying the corral. It appeared prudent to him to heighten the palisade, and to flank it with a sort of blockhouse, which, if necessary, the settlers could hold against the enemy. Granite House might, by its very position, be considered impregnable. Therefore the corral, with its buildings, its stores, and the animals it contained, would always be the object of pirates, whoever they were, who might land on the island, and should the colonists be obliged to shut themselves up there, they ought also to be able to defend themselves without any disadvantage. This was a project which might be left for consideration, and they were, besides, obliged to put off its execution until the next spring. About the 15th of May the keel of the new vessel lay along the dockyard, and soon the stern and stern-post, mortised at each of its extremities, rose almost perpendicularly. The keel, of good oak, measured one hundred and ten feet in length, this allowing a width of five and twenty feet to the midship beam. But this was all the carpenters could do before the arrival of the frost and bad weather. During the following week they fixed the first of the stern timbers, but were then obliged to suspend work. During the last days of the month the weather was extremely bad. The wind blew from the east, sometimes with the violence of a tempest. 
The engineer was somewhat uneasy on account of the dockyard sheds, which besides he could not have established in any other place near to Granite House, for the islet only imperfectly sheltered the shore from the fury of the open sea, and in great storms the waves beat against the very foot of the granite cliff. But very fortunately these fears were not realized. The wind shifted to the southeast, and there the beach of Granite House was completely covered by Flotsam Point. Pencroft and Ayrton, the most zealous workmen at the new vessel, pursued their labor as long as they could. They were not men to mind the wind tearing at their hair, nor the rain wetting them to the skin, and a blow from a hammer is worth just as much in bad as in fine weather. But when a severe frost succeeded this wet period, the wood, its fibers acquiring the hardness of iron, became extremely difficult to work, and about the 10th of June shipbuilding was obliged to be entirely discontinued. Cyrus Harding and his companions had not omitted to observe how severe was the temperature during the winters of Lincoln Island. The cold was comparable to that experienced in the states of New England, situated at almost the same distance from the equator. In the northern hemisphere, or at any rate in the part occupied by British America and the north of the United States, this phenomenon is explained by the flat conformation of the territories bordering on the pole, and on which there is no intumescence of the soil to oppose any obstacle to the north winds. Here, in Lincoln Island, this explanation would not suffice. It has even been observed, remarked Harding one day to his companions, that in equal latitudes the islands and coast regions are less tried by the cold than inland countries. I have often heard it asserted that the winters of Lombardy, for example, are not less rigorous than those of Scotland, which results from the sea restoring during the winter the heat which it received during the summer. Islands are, therefore, in a better situation for benefiting by this restitution. "'But then, Captain Harding,' asked Herbert, "'why does Lincoln Island appear to escape the common law?' "'That is difficult to explain,' answered the engineer. "'However, I should be disposed to conjecture that this peculiarity results from the situation of the island in the southern hemisphere, which, as you know, my boy, is colder than the northern hemisphere.' "'Yes,' said Herbert, and icebergs are met with in lower latitudes in the south than in the north of the Pacific. "'That is true,' remarked Pencroft, "'and when I have been serving on board whalers I have seen icebergs off Cape Horn.' "'The severe cold experienced in Lincoln Island,' said Gideon Spilett, "'may then perhaps be explained by the presence of floes or icebergs comparatively near to Lincoln Island.' "'Your opinion is very admissible indeed, my dear Spilett.' answered Cyrus Harding, and it is evidently to the proximity of icebergs that we owe our rigorous winters. I would draw your attention also to an entirely physical cause, which renders the southern colder than the northern hemisphere. In fact, since the sun is nearer to this hemisphere during the summer, it is necessarily more distant during the winter. This explains, then, the excess of temperature in the two seasons. For if we find the winters very cold in Lincoln Island, we must not forget that the summers here, on the contrary, are very hot. "'But why, if you please, Captain?' asked Pencroft, knitting his brows. 
why should our hemisphere as you say be so badly divided it isn't just that friend pencroft answered the engineer laughing whether just or not we must submit to it and here lies the reason for this peculiarity the earth does not describe a circle around the sun but an ellipse as it must by the laws of rational mechanics now the earth occupies one of the foci of the ellipse and so at one point in its course is at its apogee that is at its farthest from the sun and at another point it is at its perigee or nearest to the sun now it happens that it is during the winter of the southern countries that it is at its most distant point from the sun and consequently in a situation for those regions to feel the greatest cold nothing can be done to prevent that and men pencroft however learned they may be can never change anything of the cosmographical order established by god himself and yet added pencroft persisting the world is very learned what a big book captain might be made with all that is known and what a much bigger book still with all that is not known answered harding at last for one reason or another the month of june brought the cold with its accustomed intensity and the settlers were often confined to granite house ah how wearisome this imprisonment was to them and more particularly to gideon spilett look here said he to neb one day i would give you by notarial deed all the estates which will come to me some day if you were a good enough fellow to go no matter where and subscribe to some newspaper for me decidedly the thing that is most essential to my happiness is the knowing every morning what has happened the day before in other places than this neb began to laugh pon my word he replied the only thing i think about is my daily work the truth was that indoors as well as out there was no want of work the colony of lincoln island was now at its highest point of prosperity achieved by three years of continued hard work the destruction of the brig had been a new source of riches without speaking of the complete rig which would serve for the vessel now on the stocks utensils and tools of all sorts weapons and ammunition clothes and instruments were now piled in the storerooms of granite house it had not even been necessary to resort again to the manufacture of the coarse felt materials though the colonists had suffered from cold during their first winter the bad season might now come without their having any reason to dread its severity linen was plentiful also and besides they kept it with extreme care from chloride of sodium which is nothing else than sea salt cyrus harding easily extracted the soda and chlorine the soda which it was easy to change into carbonate of soda and the chlorine of which he made chloride of lime were employed for various domestic purposes and especially in bleaching linen besides they did not wash more than four times a year as was done by families in the olden times and it may be added that pencroft and gideon spilett while waiting for the postman to bring him his newspaper distinguished themselves as washermen so passed the winter months june july and august they were severe and the average observations of the thermometer did not give more than eight degrees of fahrenheit 
It was therefore lower in temperature than the preceding winter. But then, what splendid fires blazed continually on the hearths of Granite House, the smoke marking the granite wall with long zebra-like streaks. Fuel was not spared, as it grew naturally a few steps from them. Besides, the chips of the wood destined for the construction of the ship enabled them to economize the coal, which required more trouble to transport. Men and animals were all well. Master Jupe was a little chilly, it must be confessed. This was perhaps his only weakness, and it was necessary to make him a well-padded dressing-gown. But what a servant he was, clever, zealous, indefatigable, not indiscreet, not talkative, and he might have been with reason proposed as a model for all his biped brothers in the old and new worlds. "'As for that,' said Pencroft, when one has four hands at one's service, of course one's work ought to be done so much the better. And indeed the intelligent creature did it well. During the seven months which had passed since the last researches made round the mountain, and during the month of September which brought back fine weather, nothing was heard of the genius of the island. His power was not manifested in any way. It is true that it would have been superfluous for no incident occurred to put the colonists to any painful trial. Cyrus Harding even observed that if by chance the communication between the unknown and the tenants of Granite House had ever been established through the granite, and if Top's instinct had, as it were, felt it, there was no further sign of it during this period. The dog's growling had entirely ceased, as well as the uneasiness of the orang. The two friends, for they were so, no longer prowled round the opening of the inner well, nor did they bark or whine in that singular way which from the first the engineer had noticed. But could he be sure that this was all that was to be said about this enigma, and that he should never arrive at a solution? Could he be certain that some conjecture would not occur which would bring the mysterious personage on the scene? Who could tell what the future might have in reserve? At last the winter was ended, but an event, the consequences of which might be serious, occurred in the first days of the returning spring. On the 7th of September, Cyrus Harding, having observed the crater, saw smoke curling round the summit of the mountain, its first vapours rising in the air. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Fifteen the colonists, warned by the engineer, left their work and gazed in silence at the summit of Mount Franklin. The volcano had awoke, and the vapor had penetrated the mineral layer heaped at the bottom of the crater. But would the subterranean fires provoke any violent eruption? This was an event which could not be foreseen. However, even while admitting the possibility of an eruption, it was not probable that the whole of Lincoln Island would suffer from it. 
the flow of volcanic matter is not always disastrous, and the island had already undergone this trial, as was shown by the streams of lava hardened on the northern slopes of the mountain. Besides, from the shape of the crater, the opening broken in the upper edge, the matter will be thrown to the side opposite the fertile regions of the island. However, the past did not necessarily answer for the future. Often, at the summit of volcanoes, the old craters close and new ones open. This had occurred in the two hemispheres, at Etna, Popocatapotl, at Orizaba, and on the eve of an eruption there is everything to be feared. In fact, an earthquake, a phenomenon which often accompanies volcanic eruptions, is enough to change the interior arrangement of a mountain and to bring new outlets for the burning lava. Cyrus Harding explained these things to his companions, and without exaggerating the state of things, he told them all the pros and cons. After all, they could not prevent it. It did not appear likely that Granite House would be threatened unless the ground was shaken by an earthquake. But the corral would be in great danger should a new crater open in the southern side of Mount Franklin. From that day, the smoke never disappeared from the top of the mountain, and it could even be perceived that it increased in height and thickness, without any flame mingling in its heavy volumes. The phenomenon was still concentrated in the lower part of the central crater. However, with the fine days work had been continued. The building of the vessel was hastened as much as possible, and by means of the waterfall on the shore, Cyrus Harding managed to establish an hydraulic sawmill, which rapidly cut up the trunks of trees into planks and joists. The mechanism of this apparatus was as simple as those used in the rustic sawmills of Norway. A first horizontal movement to move the piece of wood, a second vertical movement to move the saw, this was all that was wanted, and the engineer succeeded by means of a wheel, two cylinders, and pulleys properly arranged. Towards the end of the month of September, the skeleton of the vessel, which was to be rigged as a schooner, lay in the dockyard. The ribs were almost entirely completed, and all the timbers having been sustained by a provisional band, the shape of the vessel could already be seen. The schooner, sharp in the bows, very slender in the afterpart, would evidently be suitable for a long voyage if wanted but laying the planking would still take a considerable time. Very fortunately, the ironwork of the pirate brig had been saved after the explosion. From the planks and injured ribs, Pencroft and Ayrton had extracted the bolts and a large quantity of copper nails. It was so much work saved for the smiths, but the carpenters had much to do. Shipbuilding was interrupted for a week for the harvest, the haymaking, and the gathering in of the different crops on the plateau. This work finished, every moment was devoted to finishing the schooner. When night came, the workmen were really quite exhausted. So as not to lose any time, they had changed the hours for their meals. They dined at twelve o'clock, and only had their supper when daylight failed them. They then ascended to Granite House, when they were always ready to go to bed. Sometimes, however, when the conversation bore on some interesting subject, the hour for sleep was delayed for a time. The colonists then spoke of the future, 
and talked willingly of the changes which a voyage in the schooner to inhabited lands would make in their situation. But always, in the midst of these plans, prevailed the thought of a subsequent return to Lincoln Island. Never would they abandon this colony, founded with so much labor and with such success, and to which a communication with America would afford a fresh impetus. Pencroft and Neb especially hoped to end their days there. "'Herbert,' said the sailor, "'you will never abandon Lincoln Island?' "'Never, Pencroft, and especially if you make up your mind to stay there.' "'That was made up long ago, my boy,' answered Pencroft. "'I shall expect you. You will bring me your wife and children, and I shall make jolly chaps of your youngsters.' "'That's agreed,' replied Herbert, laughing and blushing at the same time. "'And you, Captain Harding,' resumed Pencroft enthusiastically, "'you will still be the governor of the island. Ah, how many inhabitants could it support? Ten thousand at least!' They talked in this way, allowing Pencroft to run on, and at last the reporter actually started a newspaper, the New Lincoln Herald. So is man's heart. The desire to perform a work which will endure, which will survive him, is the origin of his superiority over all other living creatures here below. It is this which has established his dominion, and this it is which justifies it over all the world. After that, who knows if Jup and Top had not themselves their little dream of the future? Ayrton silently said to himself that he would like to see Lord Glenarvan again, and show himself to all restored. One evening, on the 15th of October, the conversation was prolonged later than usual. It was nine o'clock. Already long, badly concealed yawns gave warning of the hour of rest, and Pencroft was proceeding towards his bed, when the electric bell, placed in the dining-room, suddenly rang. All were there, Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, Herbert, Ayrton, Pencroft, Neb. Therefore none of the colonists were at the corral. Cyrus Harding rose. His companions stared at each other, scarcely believing their ears. "'What does that mean?' cried Neb. "'Was it the devil who rang it?' No one answered. "'The weather is stormy,' observed Herbert. "'Might not its influence of electricity—' Herbert did not finish his phrase. The engineer, towards whom all eyes were turned, shook his head negatively. "'We must wait.' said Gideon Spilett. If it is a signal, whoever it may be who has made it, he will renew it. "'But who do you think it is?' cried Neb. "'Who?' answered Pencroft. "'But he—' The sailor's sentence was cut short by a new tinkle of the bell. Harding went to the apparatus and sent this question to the corral. "'What do you want?' A few minutes later the needle, moving on the alphabetic dial, gave this reply to the tenants of Granite House. Come to the corral immediately. At last! exclaimed Harding. Yes, at last. The mystery was about to be unveiled. The colonists' fatigue had disappeared before the tremendous interest which was about to urge them to the corral, and all wish for rest had ceased. Without having uttered a word, in a few moments they had left Granite House, and were standing on the beach. Jup and Top alone were left behind. They could do without them. The night was black. 
the new moon had disappeared at the same time as the sun. As Herbert had observed, great stormy clouds formed a lowering and heavy vault, preventing any star-rays. A few lightning flashes, reflections from a distant storm, illuminated the horizon. It was possible that a few hours later the thunder would roll over the island itself. The night was very threatening. But however deep the darkness was, it would not prevent them from finding the familiar road to the corral. They ascended the left bank of the Mercy, reached the plateau, passed the bridge over Creek Glycerin, and advanced through the forest. They walked at a good pace, a prey to the liveliest emotions. There was no doubt but that they were now going to learn the long search for answer to the enigma, the name of that mysterious being, so deeply concerned in their life, so generous in his influence, so powerful in his action. Must not this stranger have indeed mingled with their existence, have known the smallest details, have heard all that was said in Granite House, to have been able always to act in the very nick of time? Every one, wrapped up in its own reflections, pressed forward. Under the arch of trees the darkness was such that even the edge of the road could not be seen. Not a sound in the forest. Both animals and birds, influenced by the heaviness of the atmosphere, remained motionless and silent. Not a breath disturbed the leaves. The footsteps of the colonists alone resounded on the hardened ground. During the first quarter of an hour the silence was only interrupted by this remark from Pencroft. We ought to have brought a torch. And by this reply from the engineer, We shall find one at the corral. Harding and his companions had left Granite House at twelve minutes past nine. At forty-seven minutes past nine they had traversed three out of the five miles which separated the mouth of the Mercy from the corral. At that moment sheets of lightning spread over the island and illumined the dark trees. The flashes dazzled and almost blinded them. Evidently the storm would not be long in bursting forth. The flashes gradually became brighter and more rapid. Distant thunder growled in the sky. The atmosphere was stifling. The colonists proceeded as if they were urged onwards by some irresistible force. At ten o'clock a vivid flash showed them the palisade, and as they reached the gate the storm burst forth with tremendous fury. In a minute the corral was crossed, and Harding stood before the hut. Probably the house was occupied by the stranger, since it was from thence that the telegram had been sent. However, no light shone through the window. The engineer knocked at the door. No answer. Cyrus Harding opened the door, and the settlers entered the room, which was perfectly dark. A light was struck by Neb, and in a few moments the lantern was lighted, and the light thrown into every corner of the room. There was no one there. Everything was in the state in which it had been left. "'Have we been deceived by an illusion?' murmured Cyrus Harding. No, that was not possible. The telegram had clearly said, Come to the corral immediately. They approached the table, specially devoted to the use of the wire. Everything was in order, the pile on the box containing it, as well as all the apparatus. Who came here the last time? asked the engineer. I did, Captain, answered Ayrton. And that was? 
Four days ago. Ah, a note, cried Herbert, pointing to a paper lying on the table. On this paper were written these words in English. Follow the new wire. Forward, cried Harding, who understood that the dispatch had not been sent from the corral, but from the mysterious retreat, communicating directly with Granite House, by means of a supplementary wire joined to the old one. Neb took the lighted lantern, and all left the corral. The storm then burst forth with tremendous violence. The interval between each lightning flash and each thunderclap diminished rapidly. The summit of the volcano, with its plume of vapor, could be seen by occasional flashes. There was no telegraphic communication in any part of the corral between the house and the palisade, but the engineer, running straight to the first post, saw by the light of a flash a new wire hanging from the isolator to the ground. "'There it is,' said he. This wire lay along the ground, and was surrounded by an isolating substance like a submarine cable, so as to assure the free transmission of the current. It appeared to pass through the wood and the southern spurs of the mountain, and consequently it ran towards the west. "'Follow it,' said Cyrus Harding. And the settlers immediately pressed forward, guided by the wire." The thunder continued to roar with such violence that a word could not be heard. However, there was no occasion for speaking, but to get forward as fast as possible. Cyrus Harding and his companions then climbed the spur rising between the Corral Valley and that of Falls River, which they crossed at its narrowest part. The wire, sometimes stretched over the lower branches of the trees, sometimes lying on the ground, guided them surely. The engineer had supposed that the wire would perhaps stop at the bottom of the valley, and that the stranger's retreat would be there. Nothing of the sort. They were obliged to ascend the southwestern spur, and redescend on that arid plateau terminated by the strangely wild basalt cliff. From time to time one of the colonists stooped down and felt for the wire with his hands, but there was now no doubt that the wire was running directly towards the sea. There, to a certainty, in the depths of those rocks, was the dwelling so long sought for in vain. The sky was literally on fire. Flash succeeded flash. Several struck the summit of the volcano in the midst of the thick smoke. It appeared there as if the mountain was vomiting flame. At a few minutes to eleven the colonists arrived on the high cliff overlooking the ocean to the west. The wind had risen the surf roared five hundred feet below. Harding calculated that they had gone a mile and a half from the corral. At this point the wire entered among the rocks, following the steep side of a narrow ravine. The settlers followed it at the risk of occasioning a fall of the slightly balanced rocks, and being dashed into the sea. The descent was extremely perilous, but they did not think of the danger they were no longer masters of themselves, and an irresistible attraction drew them towards this mysterious place, as the magnet draws iron. Thus they almost unconsciously descended this ravine, which even in broad daylight would have been considered impracticable. The stones rolled and sparkled like fiery balls when they crossed through the gleams of light. Harding was first, Ayrton last. On they went step by step. 
Now they slid over the slippery rock, then they struggled to their feet and scrambled on. At last the wire touched the rocks on the beach. The colonists had reached the bottom of the basalt cliff. There appeared a narrow ridge, running horizontally and parallel with the sea. The settlers followed the wire along it. They had not gone a hundred paces when the ridge, by a moderate incline, sloped down to the level of the sea. The engineer seized the wire and found that it disappeared beneath the waves. His companions were stupefied. A cry of disappointment, almost a cry of despair, escaped them. Must they then plunge beneath the water and seek there for some submarine cavern? In their excited state they would not have hesitated to do it. The engineer stopped them. He led his companions to a hollow in the rocks, and there— "'We must wait,' said he. "'The tide is high. At low water the way will be open.' "'But what can make you think?' asked Pencroft. "'He would not have called us if the means had been wanting to enable us to reach him.' Cyrus Harding spoke in a tone of such thorough conviction that no objection was raised. His remark, besides, was logical. It was quite possible that an opening, practicable at low water, though hidden now by the high tide, opened at the foot of the cliff. There was some time to wait. The colonists remained silently crouching in a deep hollow. Rain now began to fall in torrents. The thunder was re-echoed among the rocks with a grand sonorousness. The colonists' emotion was great. A thousand strange and extraordinary ideas crossed their brains, and they expected some grand and superhuman apparition, which alone could come up to the notion they had formed of the mysterious genius of the island. At midnight, Harding carrying the lantern, descended to the beach to reconnoitre. The engineer was not mistaken. The beginning of an immense excavation could be seen under the water. There the wire, bending at a right angle, entered the yawning gulf. Cyrus Harding returned to his companions and said simply, In an hour the opening will be practicable. Is it there, then? said Pencroft. Did you doubt it? returned Harding. But this cavern must be filled with water to a certain height, observed Harbert. Either the cavern will be completely dry, replied Harding and in that case we can traverse it on foot, or it will not be dry, and some means of transport will be put at our disposal. An hour passed. All climbed down through the rain to the level of the sea. There was now eight feet of the opening above the water. It was like the arch of a bridge, under which rushed the foaming water. Leaning forward, the engineer saw a black object floating on the water. He drew it towards him. It was a boat, moored to some interior projection of the cave. This boat was iron-plated. Two oars lay at the bottom. "'Jump in,' said Harding. In a moment the settlers were in the boat. Neb and Ayrton took the oars. Pencroft the rudder. Cyrus Harding in the bows, with a lantern, lighted the way. The elliptical roof, under which the boat at first passed, suddenly rose but the darkness was too deep, and the light of the lantern too slight, for either the extent, length, height, or depth of the cave to be ascertained. Solemn silence reigned in this basaltic cavern. 
Not a sound could penetrate into it, even the thunder peals could not pierce its thick sides. Such immense caves exist in various parts of the world, natural crypts dating from the geological epoch of the globe. Some are filled by the sea, others contain entire lakes in their sides, such as Fingal's Cave in the island of Staffa, one of the Hebrides, such are the caves of Morgat in the Bay of Duarnene in Brittany, the caves of Bonifacio in Corsica, those of Lisefjord in Norway, such are the immense mammoth caverns in Kentucky, five hundred feet in height and more than twenty miles in length. In many parts of the globe nature has excavated these caverns and preserved them for the admiration of man. Did the cavern which the settlers were now exploring extend to the center of the island? For a quarter of an hour the boat had been advancing, making detours, indicated to Pencroft by the engineer in short sentences, when all at once, "'More to the right!' he commanded. The boat, altering its course, ran up alongside the right wall. The engineer wished to see if the wire still ran along the side. The wire was there fastened to the rock. Forward, said Harding. And the two oars, plunging into the dark waters, urged the boat onwards. On they went for another quarter of an hour, and a distance of half a mile must have been cleared from the mouth of the cave, when Harding's voice was again heard. Stop, said he. The boat stopped, and the colonists perceived a bright light illuminating the vast cavern so deeply excavated in the bowels of the island, of which nothing had ever led them to suspect the existence. At the height of a hundred feet rose the vaulted roof, supported on basalt shafts. Irregular arches, strange mouldings, appeared on the columns erected by nature in thousands from the first epochs of the formation of the globe. The basalt pillars fitted one into the other, measured from forty to fifty feet in height, and the water, calm in spite of the tumult outside, washed their base. The brilliant focus of light, pointed out by the engineer, touched every point of rock and flooded the walls with light. By reflection the water reproduced the brilliant sparkles, so that the boat appeared to be floating between two glittering zones. They could not be mistaken in the nature of the irradiation thrown from the glowing nucleus whose clear rays were shattered by all the angles, all the projections of the cavern. This light proceeded from an electric source, and its white color betrayed its origin. It was the sun of this cave, and it filled it entirely. At a sign from Cyrus Harding, the oars again plunged into the water, causing a regular shower of gems, and the boat was urged forward towards the light which was now not more than half a cable's length distant. At this place the breadth of the sheet of water measured nearly three hundred and fifty feet, and beyond the dazzling centre could be seen an enormous basaltic wall, blocking up any issue on that side. The cavern widened here considerably, the sea forming a little lake. But the roof, the side walls, the end cliff, all the prisms, all the peaks, were flooded with the electric fluid, so that the brilliancy belonged to them, and as if the light issued from them. 
In the center of the lake a long cigar-shaped object floated on the surface of the water, silent, motionless. The brilliancy which issued from it escaped from its sides as from two kilns heated to a white heat. This apparatus, similar in shape to an enormous whale, was about two hundred and fifty feet long, and rose about ten or twelve above the water. The boat slowly approached it. Cyrus Harding stood up in the bows. He gazed, a prey to violent excitement. Then, all at once, seizing the reporter's arm, "'It is he! It can only be he!' he cried. "'He!' Then, falling back on the seat, he murmured a name which Gideon Spilett alone could hear. The reporter evidently knew this name, for it had a wonderful effect upon him, and he answered in a hoarse voice, "'He! An outlawed man!' "'He!' said Harding. At the engineer's command the boat approached this singular floating apparatus. The boat touched the left side, from which escaped a ray of light through a thick glass. Harding and his companions mounted on the platform. An open hatchway was there. All darted down the opening. At the bottom of the ladder was a deck, lighted by electricity. At the end of this deck was a door, which Harding opened. A richly ornamented room, quickly traversed by the colonists, was joined to a library, over which a luminous ceiling shed a flood of light. At the end of the library a large door, also shut, was opened by the engineer. An immense saloon, a sort of museum, in which were heaped up, with all the treasures of the mineral world, works of art, marvels of industry, appeared before the eyes of the colonists, who almost thought themselves suddenly transported into a land of enchantment. Stretched on a rich sofa they saw a man, who did not appear to notice their presence. Then Harding raised his voice, and to the extreme surprise of his companions he uttered these words, "'Captain Nemo, you asked for us. We are here.'" End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Sixteen At these words the reclining figure rose, and the electric light fell upon his countenance. A magnificent head, the forehead high, the glance commanding, beard white, hair abundant and falling over the shoulders. His hand rested upon the cushion of the divan from which he had just risen. He appeared perfectly calm. It was evident that his strength had been gradually undermined by illness, but his voice seemed yet powerful, as he said in English, and in a tone which evinced extreme surprise. "'Sir, I have no name.' "'Nevertheless, I know you,' replied Cyrus Harding. Captain Nemo fixed his penetrating gaze upon the engineer, as though he were about to annihilate him. Then, falling back amid the pillows of the divan, "'After all, what matters now?' he murmured. "'I am dying.' Cyrus Harding drew near the captain, and Gideon Spilett took his hand. It was of a feverish heat. 
Ayrton, Pencroft, Herbert, and Neb stood respectfully apart in an angle of the magnificent saloon, whose atmosphere was saturated with the electric fluid. Meanwhile Captain Nemo withdrew his hand, and motioned the engineer and the reporter to be seated. All regarded him with profound emotion. Before them they beheld that being whom they had styled the genius of the island, the powerful protector whose intervention, in so many circumstances, had been so efficacious, the benefactor to whom they owed such a debt of gratitude. Their eyes beheld a man only, and a man at the point of death, where Pencroft and Neb had expected to find an almost supernatural being. But how happened it that Cyrus Harding had recognized Captain Nemo? Why had the latter so suddenly risen on hearing this name uttered, a name which he believed known to none? The captain had resumed his position on the divan, and, leaning on his arm, he regarded the engineer seated near him. "'You know the name I formerly bore, sir?' he asked. "'I do,' answered Cyrus Harding, "'and also that of this wonderful submarine vessel.' The Nautilus, said the captain with a faint smile. The Nautilus. But do you know who I am? I do. It is nevertheless many years since I have held any communication with the inhabited world. Three long years have I passed in the depth of the sea, the only place where I have found liberty. Who then can have betrayed my secret? A man who was bound to you by no tie, Captain Nemo and who, consequently, cannot be accused of treachery. The Frenchman who was cast on board my vessel by chance sixteen years since? The same. He and his two companions did not then perish in the maelstrom, in the midst of which the Nautilus was struggling? They escaped, and a book has appeared under the title of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, which contains your history. "'The history of a few months only of my life,' interrupted the captain impetuously. "'It is true,' answered Cyrus Harding. "'But a few months of that strange life have sufficed to make you known, as a great criminal, doubtless,' said Captain Nemo, a haughty smile curling his lips. "'Yes, a rebel, perhaps an outlaw against humanity.' The engineer was silent. "'Well, sir?' "'It is not for me to judge you, Captain Nemo,' answered Cyrus Harding, "'at any rate as regards your past life. I am, with the rest of the world, ignorant of the motives which induced you to adopt this strange mode of existence, and I cannot judge of effects without knowing their causes. But what I do know is, that a beneficent hand has constantly protected us since our arrival in Lincoln Island, that we all owe our lives to a good, generous, and powerful being, and that this being so powerful, good, and generous, Captain Nemo, is yourself." "'It is I,' answered the captain simply. The engineer and the reporter rose. Their companions had drawn near, and the gratitude with which their hearts were charged was about to express itself in their gestures and words. Captain Nemo stopped them by a sign and in a voice which betrayed more emotion than he doubtless intended to show. "'Wait till you have heard all,' he said. Footnote. The history of Captain Nemo has, in fact, been published under the title of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. 
Here, therefore, will apply the observation already made as to the adventures of Ayrton, with regard to the discrepancy of dates. Readers should therefore refer to the note already published on this point. End of footnote. And the captain, in a few concise sentences, ran over the events of his life. His narrative was short, yet he was obliged to summon up his whole remaining energy to arrive at the end. He was evidently contending against extreme weakness. Several times Cyrus Harding entreated him to repose for a while, but he shook his head, as a man to whom the morrow may never come, and when the reporter offered his assistance, "'It is useless,' he said. "'My hours are numbered.' Captain Nemo was an Indian, the Prince Dakar, son of a Raja of the then independent territory of Bundelkund. His father sent him, when ten years of age, to Europe, in order that he might receive an education in all respects complete, and in the hopes that by his talents and knowledge he might one day take a leading part in raising his long-degraded and heathen country to a level with the nations of Europe. From the age of ten years to that of thirty, Prince Dakar, endowed by nature with her richest gifts of intellect, accumulated knowledge of every kind, and in science, literature, and art his researches were extensive and profound. He travelled over the whole of Europe. His rank and fortune caused him to be everywhere sought after, but the pleasures of the world had for him no attractions. Though young and possessed of every personal advantage, he was ever grave, sombre even, devoured by an unquenchable thirst for knowledge, and cherishing in the recesses of his heart the hope that he might become a great and powerful ruler of a free and enlightened people. Still, for long, the love of science triumphed over all other feelings. He became an artist deeply impressed by the marvels of art, a philosopher to whom no one of the higher sciences was unknown, a statesman versed in the policy of European courts. To the eyes of those who observed him superficially, he might have passed for one of those cosmopolitans, curious of knowledge, but disdaining action, one of those opulent travellers, haughty and cynical, who move incessantly from place to place, and are of no country. This artist, this philosopher, this man, was, however, still cherishing the hope instilled into him from his earliest days. Prince Dakar returned to Bundelkund in the year 1849. He married a noble Indian lady, who was imbued with an ambition not less ardent than that by which he was inspired. Two children were born to them whom they tenderly loved. But domestic happiness did not prevent him from seeking to carry out the object at which he aimed. He waited an opportunity. At length, as he vainly fancied, it presented itself. Instigated by princes equally ambitious and less sagacious and more unscrupulous than he was, the people of India were persuaded that they might successfully rise against their English rulers who had brought them out of a state of anarchy and constant warfare and misery, and had established peace and prosperity in their country. Their ignorance and gross superstition made them the facile tools of their designing chiefs. In 1857 the great Sepoy revolt broke out. Prince Dakar, under the belief that he should thereby have the opportunity of attaining the object of his long-cherished ambition,
was easily drawn into it. He forthwith devoted his talents and wealth to the service of this cause. He aided it in person, he fought in the front ranks, he risked his life equally with the humblest of the wretched and misguided fanatics. He was ten times wounded in twenty engagements, seeking death but finding it not. But at length the sanguinary rebels were utterly defeated, and the atrocious mutiny was brought to an end. Never before had the British power in India been exposed to such danger, and if, as they had hoped, the sepoys had received assistance from without, the influence and supremacy in Asia of the United Kingdom would have been a thing of the past. The name of Prince Dakar was at that time well known. He had fought openly and without concealment. A price was set upon his head, but he managed to escape from his pursuers. Civilization never recedes. The law of necessity ever forces it onwards. The sepoys were vanquished and the land of the Rajas of old fell again under the rule of England. Prince Dakar, unable to find that death he courted, returned to the mountain fastnesses of Bundukund. There, alone in the world, overcome by disappointment at the destruction of all his vain hopes, a prey to profound disgust for all human beings, filled with hatred of the civilized world, he realized the wreck of his fortune assembled some score of his most faithful companions, and one day disappeared, leaving no trace behind. Where, then, did he seek that liberty denied him upon the inhabited earth? Under the waves, in the depths of the ocean, where none could follow. The warrior became the man of science. Upon a deserted island of the Pacific he established his dockyard, and there a submarine vessel was constructed from his designs. By methods which will at some future day be revealed, he had rendered subservient the illimitable forces of electricity, which, extracted from inexhaustible sources, was employed for all the requirements of his floating equipage, as a moving, lighting, and heating agent. The sea, with its countless treasures, its myriads of fish, its numberless wrecks, its enormous mammalia, and not only all that nature supplied, but also all that man had lost in its depths, sufficed for every want of the prince and his crew. And thus was his most ardent desire accomplished, never again to hold communication with the earth. He named his submarine vessel the Nautilus, called himself simply Captain Nemo, and disappeared beneath the seas. During many years this strange being visited every ocean, from pole to pole. Outcast of the inhabited earth, in these unknown worlds he gathered incalculable treasures. The millions lost in the Bay of Vigo, in 1702, by the galleons of Spain, furnished him with a mine of inexhaustible riches which he devoted always, anonymously, in favor of those nations who fought for the independence of their country. Footnote. This refers to the insurrection of the Candiotes, who were in fact largely assisted by Captain Nemo. End of footnote. For long, however, he had held no communication with his fellow creatures, when, during the night of the 6th of November, 1866, three men were cast on board his vessel. They were a French professor, his servant, and a Canadian fisherman. 
these three men had been hurled overboard by a collision which had taken place between the Nautilus and the United States frigate Abraham Lincoln, which had chased her. Captain Nemo learned from this professor that the Nautilus, taken now for a gigantic mammal of the whale species, now for a submarine vessel carrying a crew of pirates, was sought for in every sea. He might have returned these three men to the ocean, from whence chance had brought them in contact with his mysterious existence. Instead of doing this he kept them prisoners, and during seven months they were enabled to behold all the wonders of a voyage of twenty thousand leagues under the sea. One day, the 22nd of June, 1867, these three men, who knew nothing of the past history of Captain Nemo, succeeded in escaping in one of the Nautilus's boats. But as at this time the Nautilus was drawn into the vortex of the Maelstrom, off the coast of Norway, the captain naturally believed that the fugitives, engulfed in that frightful whirlpool, found their death at the bottom of the abyss. He was unaware that the Frenchman and his two companions had been miraculously cast on shore, that the fishermen of the Lafotten Islands had rendered them assistance, and that the professor, on his return to France, had published that work in which seven months of the strange and eventful navigation of the Nautilus were narrated and exposed to the curiosity of the public. For a long time after this, Captain Nemo continued to live thus, traversing every sea. But one by one his companions died, and found their last resting place in their cemetery of coral in the bed of the Pacific. At last Captain Nemo remained the solitary survivor of all those who had taken refuge with him in the depths of the ocean. He was now sixty years of age. Although alone, he succeeded in navigating the Nautilus towards one of those submarine caverns which had sometimes served him as a harbor. One of these ports was hollowed beneath Lincoln Island, and at this moment furnished an asylum to the Nautilus. The captain had now remained there six years, navigating the ocean no longer, but awaiting death, and that moment when he should rejoin his former companions, when by chance he observed the descent of the balloon which carried the prisoners of the Confederates. Clad in his diving dress, he was walking beneath the water at a few cables' length from the shore of the island, when the engineer had been thrown into the sea. Moved by a feeling of compassion, the captain saved Cyrus Harding. His first impulse was to fly from the vicinity of the five castaways, but his harbor refuge was closed, for in consequence of an elevation of the basalt produced by the influence of volcanic action he could no longer pass through the entrance of the vault. Though there was sufficient depth of water to allow a light craft to pass the bar, there was not enough for the Nautilus, whose draft of water was considerable. Captain Nemo was compelled, therefore, to remain. He observed these men thrown without resources upon a desert island, but had no wish to be himself discovered by them. By degrees he became interested in their efforts when he saw them honest, energetic, and bound to each other by the ties of friendship. As if despite his wishes, he penetrated all the secrets of their existence. By means of the diving dress he could easily reach the well in the interior of Granite House, and climbing by the projections of rock to its upper orifice, he heard the colonists as they recounted the past, 
and studied the present and future. He learned from them the tremendous conflict of America with America itself for the abolition of slavery. Yes, these men were worthy to reconcile Captain Nemo with that humanity which they represented so nobly in the island. Captain Nemo had saved Cyrus Harding. It was he also who had brought back the dog to the chimneys, who rescued Top from the waters of the lake, who caused to fall at Flotsam Point the case containing so many things useful to the colonists, who conveyed the canoe back into the stream of the Mercy, who cast the cord from the top of Granite House at the time of the attack by the baboons, who made known the presence of Ayrton upon Tabor Island, by means of the document enclosed in the bottle, who caused the explosion of the brig by the shock of a torpedo placed at the bottom of the canal, who saved Herbert from certain death by bringing the sulphate of quinine, and finally it was he who had killed the convicts with the electric balls, of which he possessed the secret, and which he employed in the chase of submarine creatures. Thus were explained so many apparently supernatural occurrences, and which all proved the generosity and power of the captain. Nevertheless, this noble misanthrope longed to benefit his protégés still further. There yet remained much useful advice to give them, and, his heart being softened by the approach of death, he invited, as we are aware, the colonists of Granite House to visit the Nautilus by means of a wire which connected it with the corral. Possibly he would not have done this had he been aware that Cyrus Harding was sufficiently acquainted with his history to address him by the name of Nemo. The captain concluded the narrative of his life. Cyrus Harding then spoke. He recalled all the incidents which had exercised so beneficent an influence upon the colony, and in the names of his companions and himself, thanked the generous being to whom they owed so much. But Captain Nemo paid little attention. His mind appeared to be absorbed by one idea, and without taking the proffered hand of the engineer, "'Now, sir,' said he, "'now that you know my history, your judgment.' In saying this, the captain evidently alluded to an important incident witnessed by the three strangers thrown on board his vessel, and which the French professor had related in his work, causing a profound and terrible sensation." Some days previous to the flight of the professor and his two companions, the Nautilus, being chased by a frigate in the north of the Atlantic, had hurled herself as a ram upon this frigate, and sunk her without mercy. Cyrus Harding understood the captain's allusion, and was silent. "'It was an enemy's frigate!' exclaimed Captain Nemo, transformed for an instant into the Prince Dakar. "'An enemy's frigate!' It was she who attacked me. I was in a narrow and shallow bay. The frigate barred my way, and I sank her." A few minutes of silence ensued. Then the captain demanded, "'What think you of my life, gentlemen?' Cyrus Harding extended his hand to the ci-devant prince, and replied gravely, "'Sir, your error was in supposing that the past can be resuscitated.' and in contending against inevitable progress. It is one of those errors which some admire, others blame, which God alone can judge. He who is mistaken in an action which he sincerely believes to be right may be an enemy, 
but retains our esteem. Your error is one that we may admire, and your name has nothing to fear from the judgment of history, which does not condemn heroic folly, but its results. The old man's breast swelled with emotion, and, raising his hand to heaven, "'Was I wrong, or in the right?' he murmured. Cyrus Harding replied, "'All great actions return to God, from whom they are derived. Captain Nemo, we, whom you have succoured, shall ever mourn your loss.' Herbert, who had drawn near the captain, fell on his knees and kissed his hand. A tear glistened in the eyes of the dying man. "'My child,' he said, "'may God bless you.'" End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Seventeen Day had returned. No ray of light penetrated into the profundity of the cavern. It being high water, the entrance was closed by the sea, but the artificial light, which escaped in long streams from the skylights of the Nautilus, was as vivid as before, and the sheet of water shone around the floating vessel. An extreme exhaustion now overcame Captain Nemo, who had fallen back upon the divan. It was useless to contemplate removing him to Granite House, for he had expressed his wish to remain in the midst of those marvels of the Nautilus which millions could not have purchased, and to wait there for that death which was swiftly approaching. During a long interval of prostration, which rendered him almost unconscious, Cyrus Harding and Gideon Spilett attentively observed the condition of the dying man. It was apparent that his strength was gradually diminishing. That frame, once so robust, was now but the fragile tenement of a departing soul. All of life was concentrated in the heart and head. The engineer and reporter consulted in whispers. Was it possible to render any aid to the dying man? Might his life, if not saved, be prolonged for some days? He himself had said that no remedy could avail, and he awaited with tranquillity that death which had for him no terrors. "'We can do nothing,' said Gideon Spilett. "'But of what is he dying?' asked Pencroft. "'Life is simply fading out,' replied the reporter. "'Nevertheless,' said the sailor, "'if we move him into the open air and the light of the sun, he might perhaps recover.' "'No, Pencroft,' answered the engineer. "'It is useless to attempt it. Besides, Captain Nemo would never consent to leave his vessel. He has lived for a dozen years on board the Nautilus, and on board the Nautilus he desires to die.' Without doubt, Captain Nemo heard Cyrus Harding's reply, for he raised himself slightly, and in a voice more feeble, but always intelligible. "'You are right, sir,' he said. "'I shall die here. It is my wish. And therefore, 
I have a request to make of you. Cyrus Harding and his companions had drawn near the divan, and now arranged the cushions in such a manner as to better support the dying man. They saw his eyes wander over all the marvels of this saloon, lighted by the electric rays which fell from the arabesques of the luminous ceiling. He surveyed, one after the other, the pictures hanging from the splendid tapestries of the partitions, the chef d'oeuvre of the Italian, Flemish, French, and Spanish masters, the statues of marble and bronze on their pedestals, the magnificent organ leaning against the after-partition, the aquarium in which bloomed the most wonderful productions of the sea, marine plants, zoophytes, chaplets of pearls of inestimable value, and finally his eyes rested on this device, inscribed over the pediment of the museum, the motto of the Nautilus, Mobilis in Mobile. His glance seemed to rest fondly for the last time on these masterpieces of art and of nature, to which he had limited his horizon during a sojourn of so many years in the abysses of the sea. Cyrus Harding respected the captain's silence, and waited till he should speak. After some minutes, during which, doubtless, he passed in review his whole life, Captain Nemo turned to the colonists and said, "'You consider yourselves, gentlemen, under some obligations to me?' "'Captain, believe us that we would give our lives to prolong yours.' "'Promise, then,' continued Captain Nemo, "'to carry out my last wishes, and I shall be repaid for all I have done for you.' "'We promise,' said Cyrus Harding. And by this promise he bound both himself and his companions. "'Gentlemen,' resumed the captain. "'Tomorrow I shall be dead.' Herbert was about to utter an exclamation, but a sign from the captain arrested him. "'Tomorrow I shall die, and I desire no other tomb than the Nautilus. It is my grave. All my friends repose in the depths of the ocean. Their resting-place shall be mine.' These words were received with profound silence. "'Pay attention to my wishes,' he continued. "'The Nautilus is imprisoned in this grotto, the entrance of which is blocked up. But although egress is impossible, the vessel may at least sink in the abyss, and there bury my remains.' The colonists listened reverently to the words of the dying man. "'Tomorrow, after my death, Mr. Harding,' continued the captain, Yourself and companions will leave the Nautilus, for all the treasures it contains must perish with me. One token alone will remain of you of Prince Dakar, with whose history you are now acquainted. That coffer yonder contains diamonds of the value of many millions, most of them mementos of the time when, husband and father, I thought happiness possible for me and a collection of pearls gathered by my friends and myself in the depths of the ocean. Of this treasure, at a future day, you may make good use. In the hands of such men as yourself and your comrades, Captain Harding, money will never be a source of danger. 
from on high I shall still participate in your enterprises, and I fear not, but that they will prosper. After a few moments' repose, necessitated by his extreme weakness, Captain Nemo continued, "'Tomorrow you will take the coffer, you will leave the saloon, of which you will close the door. Then you will ascend on to the deck of the Nautilus, and you will lower the main hatch, so as entirely to close the vessel. "'It shall be done, Captain,' answered Cyrus Harding. "'Good. You will then embark in the canoe which brought you hither. But before leaving the Nautilus, go to the stern, and there open two large stopcocks, which you will find upon the water-line. The water will penetrate into the reservoirs, and the Nautilus will gradually sink beneath the water, to repose at the bottom of the abyss. And comprehending a gesture of Cyrus Harding, the captain added, Fear nothing, you will but bury a corpse. Neither Cyrus Harding nor his companions ventured to offer any observation to Captain Nemo. He had expressed his last wishes, and they had nothing to do but to conform to them. "'I have your promise, gentlemen,' added Captain Nemo. "'You have, Captain,' replied the engineer. The captain thanked the colonists by a sign, and requested them to leave him for some hours. Gideon Spilett wished to remain near him, in the event of a crisis coming on, but the dying man refused, saying, "'I shall live until to-morrow, sir.' All left the saloon, passed through the library and the dining-room, and arrived forward in the machine-room where the electrical apparatus was established, which supplied not only heat and light, but the mechanical power of the Nautilus. The Nautilus was a masterpiece containing masterpieces within itself, and the engineer was struck with astonishment. The colonists mounted the platform, which rose seven or eight feet above the water. There they beheld a thick glass lenticular covering, which protected a kind of large eye, from which flashed forth light. Behind this eye was apparently a cabin containing the wheels of the rudder, and in which was stationed the helmsman when he navigated the Nautilus over the bed of the ocean, which the electric rays would evidently light up to a considerable distance. Cyrus Harding and his companions remained for a time silent, for they were vividly impressed by what they had just seen and heard, and their hearts were deeply touched by the thought that he whose arm had so often aided them the protector whom they had known but a few hours, was at the point of death. Whatever might be the judgment pronounced by posterity upon the events of this, so to speak, extra-human existence, the character of Prince Dakar would ever remain as one of those whose memory time can never efface. "'What a man!' said Pencroft. "'Is it possible that he can have lived at the bottom of the sea?' and it seems to me that perhaps he has not found peace there any more than elsewhere. The Nautilus, observed Ayrton, might have enabled us to leave Lincoln Island and reach some inhabited country. Good heavens! exclaimed Pencroft. I, for one, would never risk myself in such a craft. To sail on the seas, good, but under the seas, never. I believe, Pencroft, answered the reporter, 
that the navigation of a submarine vessel such as the Nautilus ought to be very easy, and that we should soon become accustomed to it. There would be no storms, no lee shore to fear. At some feet beneath the surface, the waters of the ocean are as calm as those of a lake. That may be, replied the sailor, but I prefer a gale of wind on board a well-found craft. A vessel is built to sail on the sea and not beneath it. My friends, said the engineer, it is useless, at any rate as regards the Nautilus, to discuss the question of submarine vessels. The Nautilus is not ours, and we have not the right to dispose of it. Moreover, we could in no case avail ourselves of it. Independently of the fact that it would be impossible to get it out of this cavern, whose entrance is now closed by the uprising of the basaltic rocks, Captain Nemo's wish is that it shall be buried with him. His wish is our law, and we will fulfill it. After a somewhat prolonged conversation, Cyrus Harding and his companions again descended to the interior of the Nautilus. There they took some refreshment and returned to the saloon. Captain Nemo had somewhat rallied from the prostration which had overcome him, and his eyes shone with their wonted fire. A faint smile even curled his lips. The colonists drew around him. "'Gentlemen,' said the captain, "'you are brave and honest men. You have devoted yourself to the common weal. Often have I observed your conduct. I have esteemed you. I esteem you still.' your hand, Mr. Harding." Cyrus Harding gave his hand to the captain, who clasped it affectionately. "'It is well,' he murmured. He resumed. "'But enough of myself. I have to speak concerning yourselves, and this Lincoln Island upon which you have taken refuge. You now desire to leave it?' "'To return, Captain,' answered Pencroft quickly. "'To return, Pencroft?' said the captain, with a smile. I know it is true your love for this island. You have helped to make it what it now is, and it seems to you a paradise. Our project, Captain, interposed Cyrus Harding, is to annex it to the United States, and to establish for our shipping a port so fortunately situated in this part of the Pacific. Your thoughts are with your country, gentlemen, continued the captain. Your toils are for her prosperity and glory. You are right. One's native land. There should one live. There die. And I, I die far from all I loved. You have some last wish to transmit, said the engineer with emotion, some souvenir to send to those friends you have left in the mountains of India. No, Captain Harding, no friends remain to me. I am the last of my race, and to all whom I have known I have long been as are the dead. But to return to yourselves. Solitude, isolation, are painful things, and beyond human endurance. I die of having thought it possible to live alone. You should, therefore, dare all in the attempt to leave Lincoln Island, and see once more the land of your birth. I am aware that those wretches have destroyed the vessel you have built." "'We propose to construct a vessel,' said Gideon Spilett, 
sufficiently large to convey us to the nearest land, but if we should succeed, sooner or later we shall return to Lincoln Island. We are attached to it by too many recollections ever to forget it. "'It is here that we have known Captain Nemo,' said Cyrus Harding. "'It is here only that we can make our home,' added Herbert. "'And here shall I sleep the sleep of eternity, if,' replied the captain. He paused for a moment, and instead of completing the sentence, said simply, "'Mr. Harding, I wish to speak with you alone.' The engineer's companions, respecting the wish, retired. Cyrus Harding remained but a few minutes alone with Captain Nemo, and soon recalled his companions, but he said nothing to them of the private matters which the dying man had confided to him. Gideon Spilett now watched the captain with extreme care. It was evident that he was no longer sustained by his moral energy, which had lost the power of reaction against his physical weakness. The day closed without change. The colonists did not quit the Nautilus for a moment. Night arrived, although it was impossible to distinguish it from day in the cavern. Captain Nemo suffered no pain, but he was visibly sinking. His noble features, paled by the approach of death, were perfectly calm. Inaudible words escaped at intervals from his lips, bearing upon various incidents of his checkered career. Life was evidently ebbing slowly, and his extremities were already cold. Once or twice more he spoke to the colonists who stood around him, and smiled on them with that last smile which continues after death. At length, shortly after midnight, Captain Nemo by a supreme effort succeeded in folding his arms across his breast, as if wishing in that attitude to compose himself for death. At one o'clock his glance alone showed signs of life. A dying light gleamed in those eyes once so brilliant. Then, murmuring the words, God and my country, he quietly expired. Cyrus Harding, bending low, closed the eyes of him who had once been the Prince Dakar and was now not even Captain Nemo. Herbert and Pencroft sobbed aloud. Tears fell from Ayrton's eyes. Neb was on his knees by the reporter's side, motionless as a statue. Then Cyrus Harding, extending his hand over the forehead of the dead, said solemnly, May his soul be with God. Turning to his friends, he added, Let us pray for him whom we have lost. Some hours later the colonists fulfilled the promise made to the captain by carrying out his dying wishes. Cyrus Harding and his companions quitted the Nautilus, taking with them the only memento left them by their benefactor, the coffer which contained wealth amounting to millions. The marvelous saloon, still flooded with light, had been carefully closed. The iron door leading on deck was then securely fastened in such a manner as to prevent even a drop of water from penetrating to the interior of the Nautilus. The colonists then descended into the canoe, which was moored to the side of the submarine vessel. The canoe was now brought around to the stern. There, at the water-line, were two large stopcocks, communicating with the reservoirs employed in the submersion of the vessel. 
the stopcocks were opened, the reservoirs filled, and the Nautilus, slowly sinking, disappeared beneath the surface of the lake. But the colonists were yet able to follow its descent through the waves. The powerful light it gave forth lighted up the translucent water, while the cavern became gradually obscure. At length this vast effusion of electric light faded away, and soon after the Nautilus, now the tomb of Captain Nemo, reposed in its ocean bed. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter 18 At break of day the colonists regained in silence the entrance of the cavern, to which they gave the name of Dakar Grotto, in memory of Captain Nemo. It was now low water, and they passed without difficulty under the arcade, washed on the right by the sea. The canoe was left here, carefully protected from the waves. As additional precaution, Pencroft, Neb, and Ayrton drew it up on a little beach which bordered one of the sides of the grotto, in a spot where it could run no risk of harm. The storm had ceased during the night. The last low mutterings of thunder died away in the west. Rain fell no longer, but the sky was yet obscured by clouds. On the whole, this month of October, the first of the southern spring, was not ushered in by satisfactory tokens, and the wind had a tendency to shift from one point of the compass to another, which rendered it impossible to count upon settled weather. Cyrus Harding and his companions, on leaving Dakar Grotto, had taken the road to the corral. On their way Neb and Herbert were careful to preserve the wire which had been laid down by the captain between the corral and the grotto, and which might at a future time be of service. The colonists spoke but little on the road. The various incidents of the night of October 15th had left a profound impression on their minds the unknown being whose influence had so effectually protected them, the man whom their imagination had endowed with supernatural powers, Captain Nemo, was no more. His Nautilus and he were buried in the depths of the abyss. To each one of them their existence seemed even more isolated than before. They had been accustomed to count upon the intervention of that power which existed no longer, and Gideon Spilett and even Cyrus Harding could not escape this impression. Thus they maintained a profound silence during their journey to the corral. Towards nine in the morning the colonists arrived at Granite House. It had been agreed that the construction of the vessel should be actively pushed forward, and Cyrus Harding more than ever devoted his time and labor to this object. It was impossible to divine what future lay before them. Evidently the advantage to the colonists would be great of having at their disposal a substantial vessel, capable of keeping the sea even in heavy weather, and large enough to attempt, in case of need, a voyage of some duration. 
even if, when their vessel should be completed, the colonists should not resolve to leave Lincoln Island as yet, in order to gain either one of the Polynesian archipelagos of the Pacific, or the shores of New Zealand. They might at least, sooner or later, proceed to Tabor Island, to leave there the notice relating to Ayrton. This was a precaution rendered indispensable by the possibility of the Scotch yacht reappearing in those seas, and it was of the highest importance that nothing should be neglected on this point. The works were then resumed. Cyrus Harding, Pencroft, and Ayrton, assisted by Neb, Gideon Spilett, and Herbert, except when unavoidably called off by other necessary occupations, worked without cessation. It was important that the new vessel should be ready in five months, that is to say, by the beginning of March, if they wished to visit Tabor Island before the equinoctial gales rendered the voyage impracticable. Therefore the carpenters lost not a moment. Moreover, it was unnecessary to manufacture rigging, that of the Speedy having been saved entire, so that the whole only of the vessel need to be constructed. The end of the year 1868 found them occupied by these important labors, to the exclusion of almost all others. At the expiration of two months and a half the ribs had been set up and the first planks adjusted. It was already evident that the plans made by Cyrus Harding were admirable, and that the vessel would behave well at sea. Pencroft brought to the task a devouring energy and would even grumble when one or the other abandoned the carpenter's axe for the gun of the hunter. It was nevertheless necessary to keep up the stores of Granite House, in view of the approaching winter. But this did not satisfy Pencroft. The brave, honest sailor was not content when the workmen were not at the dockyard. When this happened he grumbled vigorously, and by way of venting his feelings did the work of six men. The weather was very unfavorable during the whole of the summer season. For some days the heat was overpowering, and the atmosphere, saturated with electricity, was only cleared by violent storms. It was rarely that the distant growling of the thunder could not be heard, like a low but incessant murmur, such as is produced in the equatorial regions of the globe. The 1st of January, 1869, was signalized by a storm of extreme violence, and the thunder burst several times over the island. Large trees were struck by the electric fluid and shattered, and among others one of those gigantic nettle trees which had shaded the poultry-yard at the southern extremity of the lake. Had this meteor any relation to the phenomenon going on in the bowels of the earth? Was there any connection between the commotion of the atmosphere? and that of the interior of the earth. Cyrus Harding was inclined to think that such was the case, for the development of these storms was attended by the renewal of volcanic symptoms. It was on the 3rd of January that Herbert, having ascended at daybreak to the plateau of Prospect Heights to harness one of the onagers, perceived an enormous hat-shaped cloud rolling from the summit of the volcano. Herbert immediately apprised the colonists who at once joined him in watching the summit of Mount Franklin. "'Ah!' exclaimed Pencroft. "'Those are not vapours this time. It seems to me that the giant is not content with breathing. He must smoke.' This figure of speech employed by the sailor exactly expressed the changes going on at the mouth of the volcano. 
already for three months had the crater emitted vapours more or less dense, but which were as yet produced only by an internal ebullition of mineral substances. But now the vapours were replaced by a thick smoke, rising in the form of a greyish column, more than three hundred feet in width at its base, and which spread like an immense mushroom to a height of from seven to eight hundred feet above the summit of the mountain. "'The fire is in the chimney,' observed Gideon Spilett. "'And we can't put it out,' replied Herbert. "'The volcano ought to be swept,' observed Neb, who spoke as if perfectly serious. "'Well said, Neb!' cried Pencroft, with a shout of laughter. "'And you'll undertake the job, no doubt.' Cyrus Harding attentively observed the dense smoke emitted by Mount Franklin, and even listened, as if expecting to hear some distant muttering. Then, turning towards his companions, from whom he had gone somewhat apart, he said, "'The truth is, my friends, we must not conceal from ourselves that an important change is going forward. The volcanic substances are no longer in a state of ebullition. They have caught fire, and we are undoubtedly menaced by an approaching eruption.' "'Well, Captain,' said Pencroft, "'we shall witness the eruption, and if it is a good one, we'll applaud it. I don't see that we need concern ourselves further about the matter.' It may be so, replied Cyrus Harding, for the ancient track of the lava is still open, and thanks to this the crater has hitherto overflowed towards the north. And yet— And yet, as we can derive no advantage from an eruption, it might be better it should not take place, said the reporter. Who knows, answered the sailor. Perhaps there may be some valuable substances in this volcano which it will spout forth, and which we may turn to good account." Cyrus Harding shook his head, with the air of a man who augured no good from the phenomenon whose development had been so sudden. He did not regard so lightly as Pencroft the results of an eruption. If the lava, in consequence of the position of the crater, did not directly menace the wooded and cultivated parts of the island, other complications might present themselves. In fact, eruptions are not unfrequently accompanied by earthquakes, and an island of the nature of Lincoln Island, formed of substances so varied, basalt on one side, granite on the other, lava on the north, rich soil on the south, substances which consequently could not be firmly attached to each other, would be exposed to the risk of disintegration. Although, therefore, the spreading of the volcanic matter might not constitute a serious danger, any movement of the terrestrial structure which should shake the island might entail the gravest consequences. "'It seems to me,' said Ayrton, who had reclined so as to place his ear to the ground, "'it seems to me that I can hear a dull, rumbling sound, like that of a wagon loaded with bars of iron.' The colonists listened with the greatest attention, and were convinced that Ayrton was not mistaken. The rumbling was mingled with a subterranean roar, which formed a sort of rinforzando, and died slowly away, as if some violent storm had passed through the profundities of the globe. But no explosion, properly so termed, could be heard. It might therefore be concluded that the vapours and smoke found a free passage through the central shaft and that the safety valve being sufficiently large, no convulsion would be produced. 
no explosion was to be apprehended. "'Well, then,' said Pencroft, "'are we not going back to work? Let Mount Franklin smoke, groan, bellow, or spout forth fire and flame as much as it pleases. That is no reason why we should be idle. Come, Ayrton, Neb, Herbert, Captain Harding, Mr. Spilett, every one of us must turn to at our work to-day. We are going to place the keelson, and a dozen pair of hands would not be too many. Before two months I want our new Bonadventure, for we shall keep the old name, shall we not, to float on the waters of Port Balloon. Therefore there is not an hour to lose." All the colonists, their services thus requisitioned by Pencroft, descended to the dockyard, and proceeded to place the keelson, a thick mass of wood which forms the lower portion of a ship, and unites firmly the timbers of the hull. It was an arduous undertaking, in which all took part. They continued their labours during the whole of this day, the 3rd of January, without thinking further of the volcano, which could not besides be seen from the shore of Granite House. But once or twice large shadows, veiling the sun, which described its diurnal arc through an extremely clear sky, indicated that a thick cloud of smoke passed between its disk and the island. The wind, blowing on the shore, carried all these vapours to the westward. Cyrus Harding and Gideon Spilett remarked these sombre appearances, and from time to time discussed the evident progress of the volcanic phenomena, but their work went on without interruption. It was, besides, of the first importance from every point of view, that the vessel should be finished with the least possible delay. In presence of the eventualities which might arise, the safety of the colonists would be to a great extent secured by their ship. Who could tell that it might not prove some day their only refuge? In the evening, after supper, Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, and Herbert again ascended to the plateau of Prospect Heights. It was already dark, and the obscurity would permit them to ascertain if flames or incandescent matter thrown up by the volcano were mingled with the vapour and smoke accumulated at the mouth of the crater. "'The crater is on fire,' said Herbert, who more active than his companions first reached the plateau. Mount Franklin, distant about six miles, now appeared like a gigantic torch, around the summit of which turned fuliginous flames. So much smoke, and possibly scoriae and cinders were mingled with them, that their light gleamed but faintly amid the gloom of the night. But a kind of lurid brilliancy spread over the island, against which stood out confusedly the wooded masses of the heights. Immense whirlwinds of vapour obscured the sky, through which glimmered a few stars. "'The change is rapid,' said the engineer. "'That is not surprising,' answered the reporter. "'The reawakening of the volcano already dates back some time.' You may remember, Cyrus, that the first vapours appeared about the time we searched the sides of the mountain to discover Captain Nemo's retreat. It was, if I mistake not, about the 15th of October. Yes, replied Herbert, two months and a half ago. The subterranean fires have therefore been smouldering for ten weeks, resumed Gideon Spilett, and it is not to be wondered at that they now break out with such violence. "'Do you not feel a certain vibration of the soil?' asked Cyrus Harding. "'Yes,' replied Gideon Spilett. 
but there is a great difference between that and an earthquake. I do not affirm that we are menaced with an earthquake, answered Cyrus Harding. May God preserve us from that. No, these vibrations are due to the effervescence of the central fire. The crust of the earth is simply the shell of a boiler, and you know that such a shell, under the pressure of steam, vibrates like a sonorous plate. It is this effect which is being produced at this moment. "'What magnificent flames!' exclaimed Herbert. At this instant a kind of bouquet of flames shot forth from the crater, the brilliancy of which was visible even through the vapours. Thousands of luminous sheets and barbed tongues of fire were cast in various directions. Some, extending beyond the dome of smoke, dissipated it, leaving behind an incandescent powder. This was accompanied by successive explosions, resembling the discharge of a battery of machine-guns. Cyrus Harding, the reporter, and Herbert, after spending an hour on the plateau of Prospect Heights, again descended to the beach, and returned to Granite House. The engineer was thoughtful and preoccupied, so much so, indeed, that Gideon Spilett inquired if he apprehended any immediate danger of which the eruption might directly or indirectly be the cause. "'Yes and no,' answered Cyrus Harding. "'Nevertheless,' continued the reporter, "'would not the greatest misfortune which could happen to us be an earthquake which would overturn the island? Now, I do not suppose that this is to be feared, since the vapours and lava have found a free outlet.' "'True,' replied Cyrus Harding and I do not fear an earthquake in the sense in which the term is commonly applied to convulsions of the soil provoked by the expansion of subterranean gases, but other causes may produce great disasters. How so, my dear Cyrus? I am not certain. I must consider. I must visit the mountain. In a few days I shall learn more on this point. Gideon Spilett said no more and soon, in spite of the explosions of the volcano, whose intensity increased, and which were repeated by the echoes of the island, the inhabitants of Granite House were sleeping soundly. Three days passed by, the 4th, 5th, and 6th of January. The construction of the vessel was diligently continued, and without offering further explanations, the engineer pushed forward the work with all his energy. Mount Franklin was now hooded by a sombre cloud of sinister aspect, and, amid the flames, vomited forth incandescent rocks, some of which fell back into the crater itself. This caused Pencroft, who would only look at the matter in the light of a joke, to exclaim, "'Ha! The giant is playing a cup and ball! He is a conjurer!' In fact, the substances thrown up fell back again into the abyss, and it did not seem that the lava— though swollen by the internal pressure, had yet risen to the orifice of the crater. At any rate, the opening on the northeast, which was partly visible, poured out no torrent upon the northern slope of the mountain. Nevertheless, however pressing was the construction of the vessel, other duties demanded the presence of the colonists on various portions of the island. Before everything it was necessary to go to the corral, where the flocks of musmons and goats were enclosed, and replenished the provision of forage for those animals. It was accordingly arranged that Ayrton should proceed thither the next day, the 7th of January, 
and as he was sufficient for the task to which he was accustomed, Pencroft and the rest were somewhat surprised on hearing the engineer say to Ayrton, "'As you are going tomorrow to the corral, I will accompany you.' "'But Captain Harding!' exclaimed the sailor. "'Our working days will not be many, and if you go also we shall be two pair of hands short.' "'We shall return tomorrow,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'But it is necessary that I should go to the corral. I must learn how the eruption is progressing.' the eruption always the eruption answered pencroft with an air of discontent an important thing truly this eruption i trouble myself very little about it whatever might be the sailor's opinion the expedition projected by the engineer was settled for the next day herbert wished to accompany cyrus harding but he would not vex pencroft by his absence the next day at dawn cyrus harding and ayrton mounting the cart drawn by two onagers, took the road to the corral and set off at a round trot. Above the forest were passing large clouds, to which the crater of Mount Franklin incessantly added fuliginous matter. These clouds, which rolled heavily in the air, were evidently composed of heterogeneous substances. It was not alone from the volcano that they derived their strange opacity and weight. Scoriae, in a state of dust, like powdered pumice-stone, and grayish ashes as small as the finest feculae, were held in suspension in the midst of their thick folds. These ashes are so fine that they have been observed in the air for whole months. After the eruption of 1783 in Iceland, for upwards of a year the atmosphere was thus charged with volcanic dust, through which the rays of the sun were only with difficulty discernible but more often this pulverized matter falls, and this happened on the present occasion. Cyrus Harding and Ayrton had scarcely reached the corral when a sort of black snow like fine gunpowder fell, and instantly changed the appearance of the soil. Trees, meadows, all disappeared beneath the covering several inches in depth. But, very fortunately, the wind blew from the northeast, and the greater part of the cloud dissolved itself over the sea. "'This is very singular, Captain Harding,' said Ayrton. "'It is very serious,' replied the engineer. "'This powdered pumice-stone, all this mineral dust, proves how grave is the convulsion going forward in the lower depths of the volcano.' "'But can nothing be done?' "'Nothing, except to note the progress of the phenomenon. Do you, therefore, Ayrton, occupy yourself with the necessary work at the corral?' In the meantime I will ascend just beyond the source of Red Creek, and examine the condition of the mountain upon its northern aspect. Then—well, Captain Harding? Then we will pay a visit to Dakar Grotto. I wish to inspect it. At any rate I will come back for you in two hours. Ayrton then proceeded to enter the corral, and, while awaiting the engineer's return, busied himself with the musmons and goats, which seemed to feel a certain uneasiness in presence of these first signs of an eruption. Meanwhile Cyrus Harding ascended the crest of the eastern spur, past Red Creek, and arrived at the spot where he and his companions had discovered a sulphurous spring at the time of their first exploration. How changed was everything! Instead of a single column of smoke he counted thirteen, 
forced through the soil as if violently propelled by some piston. It was evident that the crust of the earth was subjected in this part of the globe to a frightful pressure. The atmosphere was saturated with gases and carbonic acid, mingled with aqueous vapors. Cyrus Harding felt the volcanic tufa with which the plain was strewn, and which was but pulverized cinders hardened into solid blocks by time, tremble beneath him, but he could discover no traces of fresh lava. The engineer became more assured of this when he observed all the northern part of Mount Franklin. Pillars of smoke and flame escaped from the crater. A hail of scoriae fell on the ground, but no current of lava burst from the mouth of the volcano, which proved that the volcanic matter had not yet attained the level of the superior orifice of the central shaft. "'But I would prefer that it were so,' said Cyrus Harding to himself. "'At any rate,' I should then know that the lava had followed its accustomed track. Who can say that it may not take a new course? But the danger does not consist in that. Captain Nemo foresaw it clearly. No, the danger does not lie there. Cyrus Harding advanced towards the enormous causeway whose prolongation enclosed the narrow shark gulf. He could now sufficiently examine on this side the ancient channels of the lava. There was no doubt in his mind that the most recent eruption had occurred at a far distant epoch. He then returned by the same way, listening attentively to the subterranean mutterings which rolled like long-continued thunder, interrupted by deafening explosions. At nine in the morning he reached the corral. Ayrton awaited him. "'The animals are cared for, Captain Harding,' said Ayrton. "'Good, Ayrton.' They seem uneasy, Captain Harding. Yes, instinct speaks through them, and instinct is never deceived. Are you ready? Take a lamp, Ayrton, answered the engineer. We will start at once. Ayrton did as desired. The onagers, unharnessed, roamed in the corral. The gate was secured on the outside, and Cyrus Harding, preceding Ayrton, took the narrow path which led westward to the shore. The soil they walked upon was choked with the pulverized matter fallen from the cloud. No quadruped appeared in the woods. Even the birds had fled. Sometimes a passing breeze raised the covering of ashes, and the two colonists, enveloped in a whirlwind of dust, lost sight of each other. They were then careful to cover their eyes and mouths with handkerchiefs, for they ran the risk of being blinded and suffocated. It was impossible for Cyrus Harding and Ayrton, with these impediments, to make rapid progress. Moreover, the atmosphere was close, as if the oxygen had been partly burned up, and had become unfit for respiration. At every hundred paces they were obliged to stop to take breath. It was therefore past ten o'clock when the engineer and his companion reached the crest of the enormous mass of rocks of basalt and porphyry which composed the northwest coast of the island. Ayrton and Cyrus Harding commenced the descent of this abrupt declivity, following almost step for step the difficult path which, during that stormy night, had led them to Dakar Grotto. In open day the descent was less perilous, and besides, the bed of ashes which covered the polished surface of the rock enabled them to make their footing more secure. The ridge at the end of the shore, about forty feet in height, 
was soon reached. Cyrus Harding recollected that this elevation gradually sloped towards the level of the sea. Although the tide was at present low, no beach could be seen, and the waves, thickened by the volcanic dust, beat upon the basaltic rocks. Cyrus Harding and Ayrton found without difficulty the entrance to Dakar Grotto, and paused for a moment at the last rock before it. "'The iron boat should be there,' said the engineer. "'It is here, Captain Harding,' replied Ayrton, drawing towards him the fragile craft, which was protected by the arch of the vault. "'On board, Ayrton.' The two colonists stepped into the boat. A slight undulation of the waves carried it farther under the low arch of the crypt, and there Ayrton, with the aid of flint and steel, lighted the lamp. He then took the oars, and the lamp having been placed in the bow of the boat, so that its rays fell before them, Cyrus Harding took the helm, and steered through the shades of the grotto. The Nautilus was there no longer to illuminate the cavern with its electric light. Possibly it might not yet be extinguished, but no ray escaped from the depths of the abyss in which reposed all that was mortal of Captain Nemo. The light afforded by the lamp, although feeble, nevertheless enabled the engineer to advance slowly, following the wall of the cavern. A death-like silence reigned under the vaulted roof, or at least in the interior portion, for soon Cyrus Harding distinctly heard the rumbling which proceeded from the bowels of the mountain. "'That comes from the volcano,' he said. Besides these sounds, the presence of chemical combinations was soon betrayed by their powerful odour, and the engineer and his companion were almost suffocated by sulphurous vapours. "'This is what Captain Nemo feared,' murmured Cyrus Harding, changing countenance. "'We must go to the end, notwithstanding.' "'Forward!' replied Ayrton, bending to his oars and directing the boat towards the head of the cavern. Twenty-five minutes after entering the mouth of the grotto, the boat reached the extreme end. Cyrus Harding then, standing up, cast the light of the lamp upon the walls of the cavern, which separated it from the central shaft of the volcano. What was the thickness of this wall? It might be ten feet, or a hundred feet, it was impossible to say but the subterranean sounds were too perceptible to allow of the supposition that it was of any great thickness. The engineer, after having explored the wall at a certain height horizontally, fastened the lamp to the end of an oar, and again surveyed the basaltic wall at a greater elevation. There, through scarcely visible clefts and joinings, escaped a pungent vapour, which infected the atmosphere of the cavern. The wall was broken by large cracks, some of which extended to within two or three feet of the water's edge. Cyrus Harding thought for a brief space. Then he said in a low voice, Yes, the captain was right. The danger lies there, and a terrible danger. Ayrton said not a word, but, upon a sign from Cyrus Harding, resumed the oars and half an hour later the engineer and he reached the entrance of Dakar Grotto. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter 19 The next day, the eighth day of January, after a day and night passed at the corral, where they left all in order, Cyrus Harding and Ayrton arrived at Granite House. The engineer immediately called his companions together, and informed them of the imminent danger which threatened Lincoln Island, and from which no human power could deliver them. "'My friends,' he said, and his voice betrayed the depth of his emotion, "'our island is not among those which will endure while this earth endures. It is doomed to more or less speedy destruction, the cause of which it bears within itself, and from which nothing can save it.' The colonists looked at each other, then at the engineer. They did not clearly comprehend him. "'Explain yourself, Cyrus,' said Gideon Spilett. "'I will do so,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'Or rather I will simply afford you the explanation which, during our few minutes of private conversation, was given me by Captain Nemo.' "'Captain Nemo!' exclaimed the colonists. "'Yes.' and it was the last service he desired to render us before his death. "'The last service!' exclaimed Pencroft. "'The last service! You will see that though he is dead he will render us others yet.' "'But what did the captain say?' inquired the reporter. "'I will tell you, my friends,' said the engineer. "'Lincoln Island does not resemble the other islands of the Pacific.' and a fact of which Captain Nemo has made me cognizant must sooner or later bring about the subversion of its foundation. "'Nonsense! Lincoln Island! It can't be!' cried Pencroft, who, in spite of the respect he felt for Cyrus Harding, could not prevent a gesture of incredulity. "'Listen, Pencroft,' resumed the engineer. "'I will tell you what Captain Nemo communicated to me, and which I myself confirmed yesterday.' during the exploration of Dakar Grotto. This cavern stretches under the island as far as the volcano, and is only separated from its central shaft by the wall which terminates it. Now this wall is seamed with fissures and clefts which already allow the sulphurous gases generated in the interior of the volcano to escape. "'Well?' said Pencroft, his brow suddenly contracting. "'Well, then,' I saw that these fissures widen under the internal pressure from within, that the wall of basalt is gradually giving way, and that after a longer or shorter period it will afford a passage to the waters of the lake which fill the cavern. "'Good!' replied Pencroft, with an attempt at pleasantry. "'The sea will extinguish the volcano, and there will be an end of the matter.' "'Not so,' said Cyrus Harding. Should a day arrive when the sea, rushing through the wall of the cavern, penetrates by the central shaft into the interior of the island to the boiling lava, Lincoln Island will that day be blown into the air, just as would happen to the island of Sicily were the Mediterranean to precipitate itself into Mount Etna. The colonists made no answer to these significant words of the engineer. They now understood the danger by which they were menaced. It may be added that Cyrus Harding had in no way exaggerated the danger to be apprehended. Many persons have formed an idea that it would be possible to extinguish volcanoes, 
which are almost always situated on the shores of a sea or lake, by opening a passage for the admission of the water. But they are not aware that this would be to incur the risk of blowing up a portion of the globe, like a boiler whose steam is suddenly expanded by intense heat. The water, rushing into a cavity whose temperature might be estimated at thousands of degrees, would be converted into steam with a sudden energy which no enclosure could resist. It was not therefore doubtful that the island, menaced by a frightful and approaching convulsion, would endure only so long as the wall of Dakar Grotto itself should endure. It was not even a question of months, nor of weeks, but of days. It might be of hours. The first sentiment which the colonists felt was that of profound sorrow. They thought not so much of the peril which menaced themselves personally, but of the destruction of the island which had sheltered them, which they had cultivated, which they loved so well, and had hoped to render so flourishing. So much effort ineffectually expended, so much labor lost. Pencroft could not prevent a large tear from rolling down his cheek, nor did he attempt to conceal it. Some further conversation now took place. The chances yet in favor of the colonists were discussed, but finally it was agreed that there was not an hour to be lost, that the building and fitting of the vessel should be pushed forward with their utmost energy, and that this was the sole chance of safety for the inhabitants of Lincoln Island. All hands, therefore, set to work on the vessel. What could it avail to sow, to reap, to hunt, to increase the stores of Granite House? The contents of the storehouse and outbuildings contained more than sufficient to provide the ship for a voyage, however long might be its duration. But it was imperative that the ship should be ready to receive them before the inevitable catastrophe should arrive. Their labors were now carried on with feverish ardor. By the 23rd of January the vessel was half-decked over. Up to this time no change had taken place on the summit of the volcano. Vapor and smoke mingled with flames, and incandescent stones were thrown up from the crater. But during the night of the 23rd, in consequence of the lava attaining the level of the first stratum of the volcano, the hat-shaped cone which formed over the latter disappeared. A frightful sound was heard. The colonists at first thought the island was rent asunder, and rushed out of Granite House. This occurred about two o'clock in the morning. The sky appeared on fire. The superior cone, a mass of rock a thousand feet in height, and weighing thousands of millions of pounds, had been thrown down upon the island, making it tremble to its foundation. Fortunately, this cone inclined to the north, and had fallen upon the plain of sand and tufa, stretching between the volcano and the sea. The aperture of the crater, being thus enlarged, projected towards the sky a glare so intense that by the simple effect of reflection the atmosphere appeared red-hot. At the same time a torrent of lava, bursting from the new summit, poured out in long cascades, like water escaping from a vase too full, and a thousand tongues of fire crept over the sides of the volcano. "'The corral! The corral!' exclaimed Ayrton. It was, in fact, towards the corral that the lava was rushing, as the new crater faced the east, 
and consequently the fertile portions of the island, the springs of Red Creek and Jackamore Wood were menaced with instant destruction. At Ayrton's cry the colonists rushed to the onager's stables. The cart was at once harnessed. All were possessed by the same thought, to hasten to the corral and set at liberty the animals it enclosed. Before three in the morning they arrived at the corral. The cries of the terrified musmans and goats indicated the alarm which possessed them. Already a torrent of burning matter and liquefied minerals fell from the side of the mountain upon the meadows as far as the side of the palisade. The gate was burst open by Ayrton, and the animals, bewildered with terror, fled in all directions. An hour afterwards the boiling lava filled the corral, converting into vapour the water of the little rivulet which ran through it, burning up the house like dry grass, and leaving not even a post of the palisade to mark the spot where the corral once stood. To contend against this disaster would have been folly, nay, madness. In presence of nature's grand convulsions man is powerless. It was now daylight, the 24th of January. Cyrus Harding and his companions, before returning to Granite House, desired to ascertain the probable direction this inundation of lava was about to take. The soil sloped gradually from Mount Franklin to the east coast, and it was to be feared that, in spite of the thick Jackamore wood, the torrent would reach the plateau of Prospect Heights. The lake will cover us said Gideon Spilett. "'I hope so,' was Cyrus Harding's only reply. The colonists were desirous of reaching the plain upon which the superior cone of Mount Franklin had fallen, but the lava arrested their progress. It had followed on one side the valley of Red Creek, and on the other that of Falls River, evaporating those watercourses in its passage. There was no possibility of crossing the torrent of lava. On the contrary, the colonists were obliged to retreat before it. The volcano, without its crown, was no longer recognizable, terminated as it was by a sort of flat table which replaced the ancient crater. From two openings in its southern and eastern sides an unceasing flow of lava poured forth, thus forming two distinct streams. Above the new crater a cloud of smoke and ashes, mingled with those of the atmosphere, massed over the island. Loud peals of thunder broke, and could scarcely be distinguished from the rumblings of the mountain, whose mouth vomited forth ignited rocks, which, hurled to more than a thousand feet, burst in the air like shells. Flashes of lightning rivaled in intensity the volcano's eruption. Towards seven in the morning the position was no longer tenable by the colonists, who accordingly took shelter in the borders of Jacamar Wood. Not only did the projectiles begin to rain around them, but the lava, overflowing the bed of Red Creek, threatened to cut off the road to the corral. The nearest rows of trees caught fire, and their sap, suddenly transformed into vapor, caused them to explode with loud reports, while others, less moist, remained unhurt in the midst of the inundation. The colonists had again taken the road to the corral. They proceeded but slowly, frequently looking back, but in consequence of the inclination of the soil, the lava gained rapidly in the east, 
and as its lower waves became solidified others, at boiling heat, covered them immediately. Meanwhile the principal stream of Red Creek Valley became more and more menacing. All this portion of the forest was on fire, and enormous wreaths of smoke rolled over the trees, whose trunks were already consumed by the lava. The colonists halted near the lake, about half a mile from the mouth of Red Creek. A question of life or death was now to be decided. Cyrus Harding, accustomed to the consideration of important crises, and aware that he was addressing men capable of hearing the truth, whatever it might be, then said, Either the lake will arrest the progress of the lava, and a part of the island will be preserved from utter destruction, or the stream will overrun the forests of the far west, and not a tree or plant will remain on the surface of the soil. We shall have no prospect but starvation upon these barren rocks, a death which will probably be anticipated by the explosion of the island. "'In that case,' replied Pencroft, folding his arms and stamping his foot, "'what's the use of working any longer on the vessel?' "'Pencroft,' answered Cyrus Harding, we must do our duty to the last. At this instant the river of lava, after having broken a passage through the noble trees it devoured in its course, reached the borders of the lake. At this point there was an elevation of the soil which, had it been greater, might have sufficed to arrest the torrent. "'To work!' cried Cyrus Harding. The engineer's thought was at once understood it might be possible to dam, as it were, the torrent, and thus compel it to pour itself into the lake. The colonists hastened to the dockyard. They returned with shovels, picks, axes, and by means of banking the earth with the aid of fallen trees, they succeeded in a few hours in raising an embankment three feet high and some hundreds of paces in length. It seemed to them, when they had finished, as if they had scarcely been working more than a few minutes. It was not a moment too soon. The liquefied substances soon after reached the bottom of the barrier. The stream of lava swelled like a river about to overflow its banks, and threatened to demolish the sole obstacle which could prevent it from overrunning the whole far west. But the dam held firm, and after a moment of terrible suspense the torrent precipitated itself into Grant Lake from a height of twenty feet. The colonists, without moving or uttering a word, breathlessly regarded this strife of the two elements. What a spectacle was this conflict between water and fire! What pen could describe the marvellous horror of the scene? What pencil could depict it? The water hissed as it evaporated by contact with the boiling lava. The vapour whirled in the air to an immeasurable height, as if the valves of an immense boiler had been suddenly opened but however considerable might be the volume of water contained in the lake, it must eventually be absorbed, because it was not replenished, while the stream of lava, fed from an inexhaustible source, rolled on without ceasing new waves of incandescent matter. The first waves of lava which fell in the lake immediately solidified and accumulated so as to speedily to emerge from it. Upon their surface fell other waves, which in their turn became stone, but a step nearer the centre of the lake. In this manner was formed a pier which threatened to gradually fill up the lake, which could not overflow, 
the water displaced by the lava being evaporated. The hissing of the water rent the air with a deafening sound, and the vapour, blown by the wind, fell in rain upon the sea. The pier became longer and longer, and the blocks of lava piled themselves one on another. Where formerly stretched the calm waters of the lake now appeared an enormous mass of smoking rocks, as if an upheaving of the soil had formed immense shoals. Imagine the waters of the lake aroused by a hurricane, then suddenly solidified by an intense frost, and some conception may be formed of the aspect of the lake three hours after the eruption of this irresistible torrent of lava. This time water would be vanquished by fire. Nevertheless it was a fortunate circumstance for the colonists that the effusion of lava should have been in the direction of Lake Grant. They had before them some day's respite. The plateau of Prospect Heights, Granite House, and the dockyard were for the moment preserved, and these few days it was necessary to employ in planking and carefully caulking the vessel and launching her. The colonists would then take refuge on board the vessel content to rig her after she should be afloat on the waters. With the danger of an explosion which threatened to destroy the island, there could be no security on shore. The walls of Granite House, once so sure a retreat, might at any moment fall in upon them. During the six following days, from the 25th to the 30th of January, the colonists accomplished as much of the construction of their vessel as twenty men could have done. They hardly allowed themselves a moment's repose, and the glare of the flames which shot from the crater enabled them to work night and day. The flow of lava continued, but perhaps less abundantly. This was fortunate, for Lake Grant was almost entirely choked up, and if more lava should accumulate it would inevitably spread over the plateau of Prospect Heights, and thence upon the beach. But if the island was thus partially protected on this side, it was not so with the western part. In fact, the second stream of lava, which had followed the valley of Falls River, a valley of great extent, the land on both sides of the creek being flat, met with no obstacle. The burning liquid had then spread through the forest of the far west. At this period of the year, when the trees were dried up by a tropical heat, the forest caught fire instantaneously in such a manner that the conflagration extended itself both by the trunks of the trees and by their higher branches, whose interlacement favoured its progress. It even appeared that the current of flame spread more rapidly among the summits of the trees than the current of lava at their bases. Thus it happened that the wild animals, jaguars, wild boars, capybaras, koalas, and game of every kind, mad with terror, had fled to the banks of the Mercy and to the Tadorn Marsh, beyond the road to Port Balloon. But the colonists were too much occupied with their task to pay any attention to even the most formidable of these animals. They had abandoned Granite House, and would not even take shelter at the chimneys, but encamped under a tent near the mouth of the Mercy. Each day Cyrus Harding and Gideon Spilett ascended the plateau of Prospect Heights. Sometimes Herbert accompanied them, but never Pencroft, who could not bear to look upon the prospect of the island now so utterly devastated. It was, in truth, a heart-rending spectacle. 
all the wooded part of the island was now completely bare. One single clump of green trees raised their heads at the extremity of Serpentine Peninsula. Here and there were a few grotesque blackened and branchless stumps. The site of the devastated forest was even more barren than Tador Marsh. The eruption of lava had been complete. Where formerly sprang up that charming verdure, the soil was now nothing but a savage mass of volcanic tufa. In the valleys of the Falls and Mercy rivers no drop of water now flowed towards the sea, and should Lake Grant be entirely dried up, the colonists would have no means of quenching their thirst. But fortunately the lava had spared the southern corner of the lake, containing all that remained of the drinking water of the island. Towards the northwest stood out the rugged and well-defined outlines of the sides of the volcano, like a gigantic claw hovering over the island. What a sad and fearful sight, and how painful to the colonists, who from a fertile domain covered with forest, irrigated by watercourses, and enriched by the produce of their toils, found themselves, as it were, transported to a desolate rock, upon which, but for their reserves of provisions, they could not even gather the means of subsistence. "'It is enough to break one's heart,' said Gideon Spilett one day. "'Yes, Spilett,' answered the engineer. "'May God grant us the time to complete this vessel, now our sole refuge.' "'Do you not think, Cyrus, that the violence of the eruption has somewhat lessened? The volcano still vomits forth lava, but somewhat less abundantly, if I mistake not.' "'It matters little,' answered Cyrus Harding. "'The fire is still burning in the interior of the mountain, and the sea may break in at any moment. We are in the condition of passengers whose ship is devoured by a conflagration which they cannot extinguish.' and who know that sooner or later the flames must reach the powder magazine. To work, Spillet, to work, and let us not lose an hour. During eight days more, that is to say until the 7th of February, the lava continued to flow, but the eruption was confined within the previous limits. Cyrus Harding feared above all lest the liquefied matter should overflow the shore, for in that event the dockyard could not escape. Moreover, about this time the colonists felt in the frame of the island vibrations which alarmed them to the highest degree. It was the 20th of February. Yet another month must elapse before the vessel would be ready for sea. Would the island hold together till then? The intention of Pencroft and Cyrus Harding was to launch the vessel as soon as the hull should be complete. The deck, the upper works, the interior woodwork and the rigging might be finished afterwards, but the essential point was that the colonists should have an assured refuge away from the island. Perhaps it might be even better to conduct the vessel to Port Balloon, that is to say, as far as possible from the centre of eruption, for at the mouth of the Mercy, between the islet and the wall of granite, it would run the risk of being crushed in the event of any convulsion. All the exertions of the voyages were therefore concentrated upon the completion of the hull. Thus the 3rd of March arrived, and they might calculate upon launching the vessel in ten days. Hope revived in the hearts of the colonists, who had, in this fourth year of their sojourn on Lincoln Island, suffered so many trials. 
Even Pencroft lost in some measure the sombre taciturnity occasioned by the devastation and ruin of his domain. His hopes, it is true, were concentrated upon his vessel. "'We shall finish it,' he said to the engineer. "'We shall finish it, Captain, and it is time, for the season is advancing, and the equinox will soon be here. Well, if necessary, we must put into Tabor Island to spend the winter. But think of Tabor Island after Lincoln Island. Ah, how unfortunate! Who could have believed it possible?' "'Let us get on,' was the engineer's invariable reply. And they worked away without losing a moment. "'Master?' asked Neb a few days later. "'Do you think all this could have happened if Captain Nemo had been still alive?' "'Certainly, Neb,' answered Cyrus Harding. "'I, for one, don't believe it,' whispered Pencroft to Neb. "'Nor I,' answered Neb seriously. During the first week of March appearances again became menacing. Thousands of threads like glass, formed of fluid lava, fell like rain upon the island. The crater was again boiling with lava which overflowed the back of the volcano. The torrent flowed along the surface of the hardened tufa, and destroyed the few meagre skeletons of trees which had withstood the first eruption. The stream, flowing this time towards the southwest shore of Lake Grant, stretched beyond Creek Glycerin, and invaded the plateau of Prospect Heights. This last blow to the work of the colonists was terrible. The mill, the buildings of the inner court, the stables, were all destroyed. The affrighted poultry fled in all directions. Top and Jupe showed signs of the greatest alarm, as if their instinct warned them of an impending catastrophe. A large number of the animals of the island had perished in the first eruption. Those which survived found no refuge but Tadorn Marsh save a few to which the plateau of Prospect Heights afforded asylum. But even this last retreat was now closed to them, and the lava torrent, flowing over the edge of the granite wall, began to pour down upon the beach its cataracts of fire. The sublime horror of this spectacle passed all description. During the night it could only be compared to a Niagara of molten fluid, with its incandescent vapors above and its boiling masses below. The colonists were driven to their last entrenchment, and although the upper seams of the vessel were not yet caulked, they decided to launch her at once. Pencroft and Ayrton therefore set about the necessary preparations for the launching, which was to take place the morning of the next day, the ninth of March. But during the night of the 8th, an enormous column of vapor escaping from the crater rose with frightful explosions to a height of more than three thousand feet. The wall of Dakar Grotto had evidently given way under the pressure of gases, and the sea, rushing through the central shaft into the igneous gulf, was at once converted into vapor. But the crater could not afford a sufficient outlet for this vapor. An explosion, which might have been heard at a distance of a hundred miles, shook the air. Fragments of mountains fell into the Pacific, and in a few minutes the ocean rolled over the spot where Lincoln Island once stood. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Twenty This is the final chapter of the book. An isolated rock, thirty feet in length, twenty in breadth, scarcely ten from the water's edge, such was the only solid point which the waves of the Pacific had not engulfed. It was all that remained of the structure of Granite House. The wall had fallen headlong and been then shattered to fragments, and a few of the rocks of the large room were piled one above another to form this point. All around had disappeared in the abyss. The inferior cone of Mount Franklin, rent asunder by the explosion, the lava jaws of Shark Gulf, the plateau of Prospect Heights, Safety Islet, the granite rocks of Port Balloon, the basalts of Dakar Grotto, the long serpentine peninsula, so distant nevertheless from the center of the eruption. All that could now be seen of Lincoln Island was the narrow rock which now served as a refuge to the six colonists and their dog top. The animals had also perished in the catastrophe. The birds, as well as those representing the fauna of the island, all either crushed or drowned, and the unfortunate Jupe himself had, alas, found his death in some crevice of the soil. If Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, Herbert, Pencroft, Neb, and Ayrton had survived, it was because, assembled under their tent, they had been hurled into the sea at the instant when the fragments of the island rained down on every side. When they reached the surface they could only perceive, at half a cable's length, this mass of rocks, towards which they swam and on which they found footing. On this barren rock they had now existed for nine days. A few provisions taken from the magazine of Granite House before the catastrophe a little fresh water from the rain which had fallen in a hollow of the rock, was all that the unfortunate colonists possessed. Their last hope, the vessel, had been shattered to pieces. They had no means of quitting the reef, no fire, nor any means of obtaining it. It seemed that they must inevitably perish. This day, the 18th of March, there remained only provisions for two days, although they limited their consumption to the bare necessaries of life. All their science and intelligence could avail them nothing in their present position. They were in the hand of God. Cyrus Harding was calm, Gideon Spilett more nervous, and Pencroft, a prey to sullen anger, walked to and fro on the rock. Herbert did not for a moment quit the engineer's side as if demanding from him that assistance he had no power to give. Neb and Ayrton were resigned to their fate. "'Ah, what a misfortune! What a misfortune!' often repeated Pencroft. "'If we had but a walnut-shell to take us to Tabor Island! But we have nothing! Nothing!' "'Captain Nemo did right to die,' said Neb. During the five ensuing days Cyrus Harding and his unfortunate companions husbanded their provisions with the most extreme care, eating only what would prevent them from dying of starvation. Their weakness was extreme. Herbert and Neb began to show symptoms of delirium. 
Under these circumstances, was it possible for them to retain even the shadow of a hope? No. What was their sole remaining chance? That a vessel should appear in sight of the rock? But they knew only too well from experience that no ships ever visited this part of the Pacific. Could they calculate that, by a truly providential coincidence, the Scotch yacht would arrive precisely at this time in search of Ayrton at Tabor Island? It was scarcely probable. And besides, supposing she should come there, as the colonists had not been able to deposit a notice pointing out Ayrton's change of abode, the commander of the yacht, after having explored Tabor Island without result, would again set sail and return to lower latitudes. No, no hope of being saved could be retained, and a horrible death, death from hunger and thirst, awaited them upon this rock. Already they were stretched on the rock, inanimate, and no longer conscious of what passed around them. Ayrton alone, by a supreme effort, from time to time raised his head, and cast a despairing glance over the desert ocean. But on the morning of the 24th of March Ayrton's arms were extended towards a point on the horizon. He raised himself, at first on his knees, then upright, and his hand seemed to make a signal. A sail was in sight off the rock. She was evidently not without an object. The reef was the mark for which she was making in a direct line, under all steam, and the unfortunate colonists might have made her out some hours before if they had had the strength to watch the horizon. "'The Duncan!' murmured Ayrton, and fell back without sign of life. When Cyrus Harding and his companions recovered consciousness, thanks to the attention lavished upon them, they found themselves in the cabin of a steamer, without being able to comprehend how they had escaped death. A word from Ayrton explained everything. "'The Duncan,' he murmured. "'The Duncan!' exclaimed Cyrus Harding. And raising his hand to heaven, he said, "'Oh, almighty God! Mercifully hast thou preserved us!' It was, in fact, the Duncan, Lord Glenarvan's yacht, now commanded by Robert, son of Captain Grant, who had been dispatched to Tabor Island to find Ayrton and bring him back to his native land after twelve years of expiation. The colonists were not only saved, but already on the way to their native country. Captain Grant, as Cyrus Harding, who can have suggested to you the idea, after having left Tabor Island, where you did not find Ayrton, of coming a hundred miles farther northeast? Captain Harding, replied Robert Grant, it was in order to find not only Ayrton, but yourself and your companions. My companions and myself? Doubtless at Lincoln Island. At Lincoln Island! exclaimed in a breath Gideon Spilett, Herbert, Neb, and Pencroft, in the highest degree astonished. How could you be aware of the existence of Lincoln Island? inquired Cyrus Harding. It is not even named in the charts. I knew of it from a document left by you on Tabor Island, answered Robert Grant. A document! cried Gideon Spilett. Without doubt, and here it is, answered Robert Grant, producing a paper which indicated the longitude and latitude of Lincoln Island. 
the present residence of Ayrton and five American colonists. "'It is Captain Nemo!' cried Cyrus Harding, after having read the notice, and recognized that the handwriting was similar to that of the paper found at the corral. "'Ah!' said Pencroft. It was then he who took our Bonadventure, and hazarded himself alone to go to Tabor Island. "'In order to leave this notice,' added Herbert. "'I was then right in saying,' exclaimed the sailor, "'that even after his death the captain would render us a last service.' "'My friends,' said Cyrus Harding, in a voice of the profoundest emotion, "'may the God of mercy have had pity on the soul of Captain Nemo.' our benefactor. The colonists uncovered themselves at these last words of Cyrus Harding, and murmured the name of Captain Nemo. Then Ayrton, approaching the engineer, said simply, Where should this coffer be deposited? It was the coffer which Ayrton had saved at the risk of his life, at the very instant that the island had been engulfed, and which he now faithfully handed to the engineer. Ayrton! "'Ayrton,' said Cyrus Harding, deeply touched. Then, addressing Robert Grant, "'Sir,' he added, "'you left behind you a criminal. You find in his place a man who has become honest by penitence, and whose hand I am proud to clasp in mine.' Robert Grant was now made acquainted with the strange history of Captain Nemo and the colonists of Lincoln Island. Then, observation being taken of what remained of this shoal, which must henceforward figure on the charts of the Pacific, the order was given to make all sail. A few weeks afterwards the colonists landed in America, and found their country once more at peace, after the terrible conflict in which right and justice had triumphed. Of the treasures contained in the coffer left by Captain Nemo to the colonists of Lincoln Island, the larger portion was employed in the purchase of a vast territory in the state of Iowa. One pearl alone, the finest, was reserved from the treasure, and sent to Lady Glenarvan in the name of the castaways, restored to their country by the Duncan. There, upon this domain, the colonists invited to labor, that is to say, to wealth and happiness, all those to whom they had hoped to offer the hospitality of Lincoln Island, there was founded a vast colony, to which they gave the name of that island, sunk beneath the waters of the Pacific. A river there was called the Mercy. A mountain took the name of Mount Franklin. A small lake was named Lake Grant, and the forest became the forest of the far west. It might have been an island on terra firma. There, under the intelligent hands of the engineer and his companions, everything prospered. Not one of the former colonists of Lincoln Island was absent, for they had sworn to live always together. Neb was with his master. Ayrton was there ready to sacrifice himself for all. Pencroft was more a farmer than he had ever been a sailor. Herbert, who completed his studies under the superintendence of Cyrus Harding, and Gideon Spilett, who founded the new Lincoln Herald, the best-informed journal in the world. There Cyrus Harding and his companions received at intervals visits from Lord and Lady Glenarvan, Captain John Mangles and his wife, the sister of Robert Grant, Robert Grant himself, Major McNabb, and all those who had taken part in the history both of Captain Grant and Captain Nemo. 
There, to conclude, all were happy, united in the present as they had been in the past, but never could they forget that island upon which they had arrived poor and friendless, that island which, during four years, had supplied all their wants, and of which there now remained but a fragment of granite washed by the waves of the Pacific, the tomb of him who had borne the name of Captain Nemo. End of chapter, end of book. Thank you for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.